world. Borealis. Paradigm Expansion. Greetings from the north and welcome to our Forum Borealis conversation today called JFK and the United Putsch of America with the Forum Professor Dr. Joseph Farrell. He is a true Renaissance man mastering many fields and subjects including the breakaway civilization, the subject for a series of which this program is a part. Joseph is a respected documents researcher with an incredible ability to perceive new angles in old expositions from his fine tooth comb delving through all kinds of primary sources. He has his PhD from Oxford University and is a former adjunct professor, composer of classical music, plays the harpsichord and produces books like a German factory. So far he has authored 28 and we're still counting. Go to our website to see his biography and complete bibliography, as well as the various links to his online presence, including his website, blog and popular members forum called Giza Death Star. In our previous discussions with him, we've been covering the years from the Second World War up through the 50s, and so today it is time to look at what transpired following this with assassination of President Kennedy as our main focal point. As usual, the conversation is based upon his books on the topics we touch upon in the course of these conversations, with today's special emphasis on his own book on the JFK story, LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, A Coalescence of Interests. Again, you will have to pardon the somewhat jagged sound that haunts this uh, recording. It is not due to poor editing, but rather a problem with the line. Although we can't exclude sabotage attempt, it's more probably due to incompetence on our behalf or some kind of force majeure. But fortunately, it has no bearing upon your ability to pay attention to the contents. Welcome back to the forum, Joseph. Hello. Hello, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, let's hope it will be happy. Uh-huh. Uh, like we, we just talked about some grim scenarios before. We yes, we did. <laughs> so it would be an interesting New Year anyway. Yep. So today we will continue the thread we began on last time. And uh, like last time, I have one or two pre-prepared questions before we just open up mm-hmm. for a free discussion on the topic today, which is JFK. Right. So, um, I think when we look at uh, the JFK story, I think it's important to understand the backdrop of it. Yes. Uh, and uh, like I admitted, full disclosure, I admitted to you before we began here that uh, I have not yet read your JFK book. I did order it before Christmas, <laughs> together with a couple of others I still don't have. 
But the forces uh, of the postal services are conspiring against us here. <laughs> so I'll probably get it uh, tomorrow or something. But it's okay. We, we have uh, enough... I have enough insight into the subject to have an intelligent debate with you, I think, about it. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I'm interested here to pick up on the Roosevelt tread. Right. Because uh, Roosevelt, he died just days before the bunker yes. uh, of Hitler was overtaken. Yes. And... Uh, Actually, I want to start by reading to you a quote from Harry Cooper's book, Escape from the Bunker, because I think this kind of, it gives us an interesting insight into the mentality of the, of the Nazis. Yes. And I do believe that this book is genuine, that the guy who told him these things was a witness, because you, when you read it, it's just too much inside information. It's to too be. much, yes. It's, in fact, I yeah. know that book. I, I refer to that in um, my book, Nazi International, so I know exactly the book you're talking about. Mm, yeah. And I mean, even if it was a construct, it's based upon true insider insight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because we do know the author was connected. so, And it goes like this. Perhaps the only message which brought any consolation to those in the bunker the last days was the startling news we received on April 13. We learned that President Franklin Roosevelt had died. Oddly enough, Wagner was instructed to contact intelligence headquarters in the stronghold in southern Germany to ask if we had any hand in it. <laughs> That's so that's so interesting. The answer came back no, it was a normal death. Not that I believe they would have admitted it in a book if it wasn't, but okay. Uh, continuing the quote The news of the American leader's death was seized on in the bunker, both as a sign of a change in our fortunes and as an event which would lead to our salvation, even at this eleventh hour. I heard that uh, Dr. Goebbels confidently predicted that with Roosevelt out of the way, the Allies would now wake up to the threat of Russia dominating Europe and would quickly end hostilities against Germany and join us in the fight against the Red Hordes. According to reports which had come into the bunker earlier in the year from our agents in the US, it was Roosevelt who snuffed any hopes the Nazis had that the Russians would be kept out of Berlin. Even then... It was quite clear that had they wanted to, the Americans and British could easily have won the race to the Reich capital. But Roosevelt, we were told, had already had secret talks with Stalin without the knowledge or approval of the British and French in which the Americans had agreed that the Russian take the capital. We were informed that privately the president regarded the Russians as the only people fit to do the dirty job of taking Berlin. The Russians, he said, were savages, and he was perfectly happy to let them take Berlin. The Americans wanted no part of it. And he further agreed with the Russians, our agents said, just how Germany would be partitioned when the hostilities ended. Accordingly, instructions were issued to the Allied commander, General Eisenhower, interesting, mm-hmm. direct from the White House, ordering him to slow the advance of British and American armies into Germany. The Russians must be given time to take Berlin and do their dirty work. Therefore, 
In contradiction of his field generals Patton and Montgomery, Eisenhower put on the brakes on the drive for Berlin. But now, with Roosevelt dead, Nazi hopes were rising that the Allies in the West would resume their push to the capital. Regrettably for Germany, and as it turned out for the rest of the world, this never happened. One effect of this American failure was to make it easier for me to escape Germany, and not only for me, but for many Nazi leaders who fled across the borders of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Had they seized the opportunities, the Allies might well have captured the man who was destined to continue preaching on Nazi creed long after the war was over, Martin Bormel himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. End of quote. Oh, pretty long quote, but it's so significant because... Yes. It uh, intimates a couple of things I want to ask you about. The first thing is that this kind of shows that they were looking upon, of course, Roosevelt as a problem, but they looked at Truman differently. Yes. Um, Because right before the invasion of the bunker, Henry Wallace was booted. Mm -hmm. Yes. He he was a left-leaning idealist. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right? And he was replaced by a KKK member, Truman. <laughs> yeah. Even the Nazis thought it was their own bidding, according to this uh, quote from Escape of the Bunker. So if the Nazis thought it could have been their own bidding, it means that they were linked to the hard right, to the Cromwell people. Uh, Because I think what happened here, the replacement of Wallace with uh, Truman has the stench of of the uh, Solomon Cromwell gang. Yes. And their people, but powerful positions under Truman. Yes. So I think this could be the first hoop, actually. Yes. Yes. And I think that encouraged by this, that they get the left people out and their own people in. I think this could have continued their schemes. They became confident since they now had even more power than before. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower could have been told his place. Mm-hmm. They even got him to meet with the Der Führer, mm-hmm. uh, maybe. And then he warns us right. before he, he goes off. Then comes JFK in and panic spreads. Right. And the rest is history. What do you think about that scenario? Well, I think I actually think it is a scenario, a, a hypothesis that has some merit. Uh, because let's look at the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd very briefly for a moment. Um, you're referring there principally to, I, I think, the Dulles brothers, uh, John Foster, who later becomes Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. And then his more famous brother, of course, Alan Dulles, who eventually heads up the CIA and, in fact, positioned himself once Truman takes over after Roosevelt's death, positions himself to become the the tapped head, so to speak, of, of the CIA that Truman will create in, in 1947 when he signs the National Security Act into law. That basically – for for your, our European listeners, that act basically set up the American national security state mm. that has existed ever since. So we owe all of this to Truman. So I do think that this is a scenario that is worth investigation. Now, I haven't investigated it, but I do think there is merit to it. 
because that Sullivan and Cromwell crowd, let's let's go back and remember something. That Sullivan and Cromwell crowd, chiefly through Alan Dulles and, and William McKittrick, the head of the uh, Bank of International Settlements mm-hmm. during the war, mm-hmm. was an American, William McKittrick. And they were indeed in negotiations with elements inside the Third Reich mm-hmm. to bring the Western part of the war to a conclusion through some sort of negotiated peace. So right up to, uh, and including, in my opinion, the bomb plot uh, against Hitler in, in July of 1944, <coughs> Roosevelt and his secretary of uh, the Treasury at one time, Henry Morgenthau, Henry Wallace, of course, uh, Harry Dexter White, all of these people in the Roosevelt administration got wind of this attempt to have a back channel negotiation and they shut it down all right mm. so rose this is true that that roosevelt put a stop to this and of course what this what this means in terms of of our interest is that the sullivan and cromwell crowd was negotiating with that element inside the third reich that was interested in continuing the war and and therefore you know they were in, in negotiation with the nazis now it's very interesting i mentioned this the last time mm. that these are the people Harry Dexter White, Morgenthau, uh, and so on and so forth, were some of the people that were fingered in the post-war investigations into communist infiltration and influence. Mm. Uh, House and American Activities Committee, of course, and then later McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, was investigating these very people for this this trend and, and the policies that came out of it. So if you're if you're sitting in the bunker in Berlin noticing all of this, it does appear, once Truman takes over, that there has been a wholesale clean-out of, yeah, yeah. Rose, of Roosevelt's left-leaning, very, very sympathetic uh, people toward, toward communism, toward the Soviet Union, and a replacement with the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. So it's natural that they would suspect these things. Now, I, I, I think there's too much – personally, I think there's too much – uh, detailed collusion here that would indicate that there is some sort of thing taking place, a kind of coup, as you suggested, mm. against Roosevelt. And there are even people in this country that have suggested that Roosevelt was indeed quietly assassinated. Mm, mm, uh, mm. And I was actually going there. Thank you. Could, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this has been around uh, in the United States. It's never been a very popular meme or thread within alternative literature, but it has been there since uh, Roosevelt's death. And it is I mean, true. The timing is so suspicious. The timing is yes, it is. It is very suspicious. And uh, there have been people that have always insisted that, that his death was, was too too suspicious. And the post-war settlement that, that Roosevelt would have put into place was radically different than the, the containment and rollback policy that Truman put into place. Now, here's an interesting thing that you need to add to your scenario. Mm-hmm. One of Truman's closest advisors – there was a fellow by the name of George F. Kennan, K-E-N-N-A-N. And George Kennan is the fellow that 
basically authored a very significant National Security Council policy memorandum. It's National Security Memorandum number 48. He wrote this in the year 1948. It was approved by Truman. What this policy did was it established a long-term American uh, policy vis-a-vis the Soviet bloc Mm that was called containment and rollback. So in other words, what the Truman administration elected to do was to put into place a policy basically of of laying siege to the communist bloc until it would finally crack under economic pressure and then use, and please pay attention to this, then use the policy of cells, of of the, the... uh, suppressed nation cells. Oh, like Gladio. Like Gladio, exactly. Stay like behind, the, yes. The stay behind cells that were whose network? Well, they were Reinhardt Galen's network. Yeah, Nazis. <laughs> Nazis. So in other words, George F. Kennan puts this policy into place. Now, here's the significant thing. Guess where George F. Kennan learned his geopolitics? Oh, Cromwell, uh, Oliver and Cromwell crowd? No, no, he studied at the University of Berlin in between the wars. Wow, even worse. <laughs> even worse, yes. Wow. You know, it's, so in other words, it does look to me, and it has always looked to me, like there was something highly suspicious about the end of the Roosevelt administration and then the way Truman comes in. Truman, you know, people have to remember, Truman was simply a senator from Missouri. He really was uh, was kind of a very low-ranking fellow to bring into the Roosevelt administration at the last minute. And this indicates to me precisely what you suggest. This indicates tremendous pressure is being brought to bear on Franklin Roosevelt in the final days of the war to, to change his ticket completely. Mm. Um, this, this to me has always indicated pressure. And then, of course, once Truman gets in, what does he do? He fills all of the sensitive positions that he's creating in the government with this Sullivan and Cromwell crowd that has all these ties to the Nazis. So I, I've argued many times that even Truman himself, I don't think, was fully aware of the extent to which these people were going by, behind his back and, and working out some of these dirty deals. Um, I, I, I do think that there is something to be said that this was kind of a soft coup in a certain sense. Yeah. And this is why you have set up the the subsequent – Eisenhower uh, statement, as you indicated, that that when he leaves office, he's warning the world about the military-industrial complex. And I've always I've always had this gut feeling that he was warning not simply about the CIA and the Pentagon and Northrop Grumman and Raytheon and Lockheed and all of this. I think he was also trying to warn us about this immense military-industrial complex that they were confronting with Nazi Germany, and in particular in the form of IG Farben with all of its international connections and licensing agreements and, and financial arrangements and so on and so forth that, that drove the Nazi war machine. I think he was warning of, of that as well. Yeah, but they don't have to be mutual exclusive because if, if that right. um, uh, Nazi war machine was integrated to our system, no matter who right. calls the shots, it means that they would be represented also by the traditional sure. national security establishment. Sure, exactly, exactly, exactly. So I do think I do think your scenario, your hypothesis, has some merit. It's it's worth investigating. I, I do think that. But you know, I'm inferring this from what I've learned from your books and from our talks. Uh-huh. 
and uh, it, it kind of dawned upon me last time, but it, we didn't have time to go into it, and it belongs today. And <clears throat> Because if we just objectively look at the clues we've got here, what do mm-hmm. we got? We've got a perceived leftist president. Right. We've got the Soviet Russians, so powerful. You know, the only balance towards the communism threat in their eyes was the Nazis. That's what right. uh, why they propped up Hitler in the first place. They thought he could be controlled. Right. So we have a scenario. Let's look at this from the uh, American capitalist fascist right, where you have uh, a leftist in charge of America. You have the communists in Russia and you have the buffer crumbling down. So they must have panicked because they don't trust uh, Roosevelt and his gang. And so we have suspicious element number one, Roosevelt dies days before they take Hitler. Right. Uh, We have immediate booting of influential real leftists like Wallace Right. And, and replacement of, of the opposite, uh, of the Solomon Cromwell gang. Uh, we have, uh, like you said right now, we have, uh, they, they lift up Truman and put him in place. Right. A, a guy they can trust, but they can't put a hard rotist in. It would be too suspicious. They need someone who exactly. everyone could accept, right? Right, exactly. Yes. And then we have uh, uh, the problem that Eisenhower came in after Truman, because, I mean, they couldn't have an open coup because it was the first coup that we know of. So they would be much more careful than they were with JFK. Right. Uh, they would have no guarantees that they would succeed. Well, let's, let's add another fact here that many people in Europe may not be aware of. There are, uh, there are even Americans that are not aware of this fact. When Franklin Roosevelt first took office during his first administration in 1933 – Shortly thereafter, there was an actual coup attempt. Oh, yeah, the bomb plot, right? No, no. This was no, a, no, uh, the business plot, I mean. The businessman's yes. plot. The, the, the Wall Street, uh, the major Wall Street corporations got together and decided that they needed a military coup to march on Washington and overthrow Franklin Roosevelt. Now, listen carefully to what happens. They recruited a Marine general by the name of Smedley Butler, mm. who later goes on to expose the coup, and he wrote a book called War as a Racket. All right. It's yeah. a very, very well known book, alternative. Well, Smedley Butler decided that, you know, he was he was not about to commit treason, but he decided to play along with these Wall Street capitalists and learn as much about the plot as he could. And then he went to Roosevelt and exposed it. Mm. And in the in the meantime, as he's doing this, the coup people, the coup plotters that were going to overthrow Roosevelt turned to another general that they knew was reliable, that would would not hesitate to use American troops to fire on American citizens. And guess who that was? That's a very good question. Patton? Nope. Douglas MacArthur. Wow. Yeah, they turned to General MacArthur. And of course, we know that we know of the bad blood that eventually erupted between MacArthur and Truman. Um, MacArthur was, you know, MacArthur was literally fired by Truman for for statements and actions that indicated to Truman, anyway, that MacArthur could start a general war 
in the far towards the Russians, towards the Russians and the Chinese. Mm. So in other words, he wanted to bomb the bridges in North Korea over the Yalu River and cut off, you know, cut off the Chinese and, and actually nu- use nuclear weapons. And and you know, Truman <laughs> Truman wasn't about to have that. And that's what led to MacArthur eventually being fired by President Truman. So you have all of these things lurking in the background. So to me, the very fact that you have an element within the American uh, corporate capitalist structure that was willing and able to go to the extreme length of planning a military coup and recruiting a general that they thought would be amenable to their to their plans to lead mm. this thing. Mm. The only thing that prevented it was, of course, General Butler, you know, exposed them to Roosevelt. And and this this indicates just how bad it was. So this is another factor I think weighs very heavily with your hypothesis here mm-hmm. that we could be looking at a form of a soft coup of some sort with President Truman being put on the ticket uh, in in Roosevelt's final campaign when he dropped Henry Wallace. Mm-hmm. So all of this is very, very uh, – to me, it's, it's very plausible. It has always struck me as well that there's something – lurking in the background here that smacks of organization and planning mm. rather than simply a coincidental death of, of a wartime president toward the end of, of World War II. It's not at all far-fetched considering no, – uh, I mean if, if they are so desperate that they're trying a downright military coup. Yep. And like you said, it's just because of patriotism of Butler that it didn't right. succeed. And even after he exposed it, there were no consequences. Right. Uh, people even ridiculed it and they tried to portray it as if uh, it's not real. There were some hearings, I think, but uh, it didn't go anywhere. There were hearings. What Roosevelt did, Roosevelt was an extraordinarily clever man in this in this instance because he used the evidence of this plot to more or less blackmail these people into cooperating with his agenda. Uh, so, in other words, they had old scores to settle with Roosevelt as well, you know. So, <laughs> and that's probably also why they had to try a new tactic this time, then. Right, exactly. Because a coup right before the triumphant victory would backfire on them. Exactly. At this point, it was too late to, to make the tide change. They, instead, they would have to do a Tai Chi maneuver where they go in, they take over the machine, and they gently derail it towards, I guess you could say, towards the right. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. Huh. And that's, that's exactly what happens under, under Truman. Yeah, and it's so suspicious. It, it is extraordinarily suspicious. And you get, you know, this is why I say you get the feeling that there's something going on. There's an awareness in, in the country after World War II that there's something going on in Washington and it's not quite right. The government mm-hmm. is not responding in quite the right way. So you have all of these congressional committees investigating this and that aspect of, of supposed infiltration of and penetration of the federal government. And it is it, it to me has to be viewed of a piece, but no one has written to my knowledge this kind of alternative history 
from Roosevelt up to to Truman and and then beyond into Eisenhower and Kennedy, trying to tie all this together. And I think this is a crucial period that needs to be looked at by by alternative researchers. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed that this isn't an established. Uh hypothesis uh, with many books already. Right. Here in Norway, we have compulsory military service. And right. mm-hmm. uh, when I was uh, conscripted, um, I remember watching some videos from the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's the, that's the spark of my suspicion to what we're talking about here, because uh, this was propaganda videos from America. And I sure. watched one from 1945. It was just after the war or yeah, just after the war was over. It was about it was a so-called enlightenment video movie clip uh, for the American TV about the Russians to educate Americans about the Russians. And mm-hmm. I was amazed because it was a brave brethren. The Russian yep. people have this and that. And it, it, they really portrayed them as heroes. Yep. It was yep. it was uh, <laughs> it was almost like a Stalin had ordered this clip. Obviously, this was issued <laughs> by the by the Roosevelt people. Sure. But then. I saw the next video I saw was probably like half a year after, and it was demonizing them oh, yeah. bad, big time. So obviously someone in the government decided that no, now that we won the war, we're going to turn our, our guns or and our media guns towards the Russians here. Yep. And so it was such a huge 180 degree turnaround that it indicates that even without any conspiracy theory, obviously there's a policy change on the coin here. Bam! Oh, yeah. Flipping it. So, fast forward to now, and, and let's just up the ante considerably, because there's an established conspiracy hypothesis I just learned, that the bomb plot, you know, what, what's his name, Stauffenberg? Is yep. that uh, Yeah. Some people actually speculate that because those people went radicals, uh, those who tried to to kill Hitler. Uh, at uh, when was it in forty four? July twenty fifth, nineteen forty four. Yeah. So it was kind of late. They knew which way the wind blew. I mean, at that point, Bormann and company had already designed their escape plans. Right. So it was obvious to anyone who was in the loop in the German system that this is going south. Yeah. So there is this uh, hypothesis that they didn't act alone, that they negotiated with people in the allied structure. And yes. those people would be none other than the business plot that the, uh, yep. the Oliver Cromwell crowd, the same people who actually came into the scene after the war and negotiated with them, Dulles uh, and the people like that. Exactly. Right, and it went through the predecessor of CIA. So, if this is right, if this was, uh, uh, you know, we can't control Hitler, let's ally with the more sane part of the German military and then join forces against the Russians, because that's proven now, I think, to be the plan that Staffenberg and company had. You know, to save Germany from right. the Russian hordes, we right. have to make a peace deal, admit everything, give them everything, the, the, the Americans, and then join forces towards the Russians. And that makes all the sense in the world from their perspective. Well, there, there's another factor playing in here. We have to remember at about this time during the war, uh, the Wehrmacht had some, I think, 60 to 70 divisions on the Western Front. 
And militarily, let, you know, let's just play what if here. Had they been successful in negotiating a, a negotiated settlement with the Western allies, that would have released 70 divisions to the Eastern Front. So in other mm. words, you'd have another Operation Barbarossa situation all over again. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the Red Army was, was, was competent, but it was, it was also on its last legs. Yeah. You know, the Germans had, had, had blown up the infrastructure of the Soviet Union in Eastern, in, in European Russia pretty badly. So, and probably with uh, illegal, exotic, uh, like you touched upon earlier, oh, yeah. weapons. But the other thing we have to remember is that it is at about this time, according to my research, that the German A-bomb project is nearing completion. Mm. So this, to me, is the thing that I think lurks in the background as the bargaining chip that they were planning to use uh, with the Western allies. Excuse me, I just have to inject, because Stauffenberg and, and those guys, they wouldn't be private to the bell, but they would be private to this, right? Because this oh, yeah. wasn't that big a secret. No, it, you know, this this is something that, that was uh, – we, we need to remember that Kampf von Stauffenberg was a, a staff assistant at the German general staff. So in other words, he would have – So his name, his name actually indicated his job. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you staff. Know, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he would have been probably privy to at least the awareness that the Germans were working on this yeah. thing and, and getting very close to a successful conclusion, which in my research uh, indicates that they may have successfully tested an A-bomb sometime in October of 1944. So in other words, this is a few months ahead of, of that test. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the hidden bargaining chip that they were – planning to use with the Western allies had they been successful in their coup mm. and overthrown the Nazi regime. That, look, you know, we've got this weapon. It's pointless for you to continue the war against us. Uh, we don't want to use it against you. It's perfect for use against the Russians, yeah. you know. So I, I think this is the other factor that's playing into the background here. Um, so there's so much going on off the beaten track of, of standard history that I think makes so much more sense of this situation. And if you, if you are the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd and you have these contacts inside of Germany, and incidentally I talk about this in the third way, these, these contacts between certain high-ranking Nazis and the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. It's on the way in the post to me. I'm it's on before. the way yeah. in the post to yeah. you, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look at that. It's, yeah. a, it's an eye-opener. But um, I, I, I do think that this also means that the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd are also aware of how close the, the Germans are getting to achieving nuclear capability and that this is part of the factor behind their willingness to negotiate over and behind, you know, over the head and behind the back of Franklin Roosevelt and his advisors to negotiate with some of these Germans. Um, I think this is the other factor that's playing into the, into the picture here. Mm. Uh, and if it wasn't complicated enough, there's even, uh, uh, and this is a pure conspiracy theory, but there are those who actually, uh, and I, I, I haven't gone too deep into it, so I don't know how good the source says for this speculation is, but there are those who think that they actually succeeded in killing Hitler in the bomb plot, mm -hmm. Stauffenberg and co., mm -hmm. but that the 
Bowman, I mean, he's he's no baby in the cradle. So what they did was that they managed to... Because we all know how the story went. It's a brilliant film out there with, is it Tom... Uh, Tom, Tom Cruise. Uh, Cruise, yeah, mm-hmm. portrays this. That they actually, if you, people who've seen this movie, just imagine that they actually did get to kill him because we have no real information of what happened. <laughs> but he had so many doubles. Yeah. So in order to, to get the power back, they had to prop up double. Yeah. And make him... Because the whole thing that made a tight turn that made the coup uh, attempt fail was the fact that they got Hitler on the air who managed to convince people that, no, no, I'm still alive, so let's take these bastards. Well, there's another aspect to the bomb plot. Since, we're, since you're mentioning alternative possibilities here, mm-hmm. there's, another, there's another aspect of the bomb plot that I mentioned in the third way. And I mentioned it in conjunction with a document that I, I put in the third way this is called the Madrid Circular, all right? Mm-hmm. This is ostensibly a document that was drawn up by the German Geopolitical Research Center in Madrid, Spain, in 1950. So we know who's drawing up this document, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, I, it's important for people to understand something here. There is no verifiable provenance for this document, in other words, it only appears in one source, right, mm-hmm. that I was able to find. In fact, I knew about this document when I was writing the Nazi International, but I decided not to include it in that book because it would have I, – I reasoned that it would have been just too much for people to absorb all this and that I had to lay a bigger foundation before I talked about this document. So I've known about it for quite a while. But in the document, basically what this document does is it lays out the long-term strategy and policy of what I've been calling the post-war Nazi international, all right, and how they're going to do this. One of the things that the document clearly mentions is that they are going to create a European federation, which Germany dominates militarily, economically, and politically, all right, Mm -hmm. which has happened. The other thing that they mention is that they are going to set the East and the West against each other and get them involved in endless conflicts until they're so weakened yeah. that that Europe emerges as the new superpower. All right, that's, now, a, that's a whole point behind the term uh, third way, right? That's the whole point behind the term third way, exactly. Now, in this document, and remember, it supposedly comes out in 1950. Now, I've mentioned that it has no provenance, but it appears in a book that was called Germany Plots with the Kremlin that was published in this country in the year 1953 Hmm. by a German-American that had emigrated from Germany prior to the war because of his his dislike of the Nazi regime. He was kind of a secularized German Jew by the name of T.H. Tatens, T-E-T-E-N-S, Tatens. Mm-hmm. So the the actual appearance of the document historically occurs publicly in the year 1953, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, when you read this document, you're going to be stunned that this could so accurately portray in detail what's going on today, all right? Now, hmm. why am I mentioning all of this when we were talking about the bomb plot? Because in the document, it quite – specifically states 
that the bomb plot was used by the Nazis as a opportunity, as a crisis of opportunity to stage fake executions of people allegedly involved in the bomb plot so that they could give them new identities and smuggle them out of Europe at the end of the war. Wow. Wow. So in other words, it raises the specter that some of the people that you hear about that that were supposedly executed for their part in the bomb plot against Hitler may not have been executed at all, but rather that the whole thing was to a degree staged so that they could so they could precisely remove certain people from the Allied watch list. You know why why look for people right. that supposedly the Nazis have executed? Right. And get them out of Europe. Now, when I read that, Al, I was just literally stunned. I was floored. And it even mentions that they they created the legend that these people had committed long-term treason against the Nazi regime in order to do this. Yeah, but wasn't uh, wasn't the bomb plotters mainly military and not Nazis? They were they were mainly military. Uh, you had people like uh, Ludwig Beck, General Beck, the former chief yeah. of, of the general staff. You had uh, Gödler, the the former uh, mayor of Leipzig, and so on. You had uh, people like uh, Eric Fromm, the the yeah. general in charge of of the home army. Politically, I kind of look at them as uh, similar to the Cromwell uh, office people. Well, they are, and and here's the significant name, one of the significant names that was executed supposedly for his part in the bomb plot and that was admiral wilhelm canaris who was the head of the abwehr all right and this this guy you know to my mind this guy is probably one of the prime candidates for for touching up the legend by a fake execution because of course admiral canaris during world war one was part of uh, graf von spee's squadron that was coming from the far east down through the Straits of Magellan. Yes, he's the guy that's mapping all of these potential hidden Navy bases for German ships and U-boats. Yeah, Cooper told me about that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Canaris is one of the people that you'd want to have around. Yeah. So, you know, and supposedly he's executed for his part in the bomb plot. Well, you know, the Madrid Circular raises all sorts of red flags about all of this. So, (laughs) you know, the, the end of the war is there's so much going on in Europe. Yeah. There's so much going on in the United States. And all of this, Al, when you put it all together, reeks and smacks of coordination. So in other words, this is another factor that, that I think argues in favor of the kind of speculation that you've offered here, that, that there is something going on inside the United States that is aiding and abetting this whole process. And, and I, I, I've, I've thought that for a long time about this very same period of history. So, you know, I'm, I'm four square in agreement with you. But, but that would have to be then, uh, obviously, the guy who calls the shots on the German side has to be Bormann. Uh, the, the, oh, yeah, this, wouldn't, this wouldn't be absolutely. done as a separate... Oh, no, no. So, no. so uh, I mean, I can see Canaris uh, being on 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 board with this. Uh, oh yeah, those. Canaris. Is, Canaris. You know, you you read about the history of this guy, and this guy is the quintessential spy. Yeah. 
uh, you know, he's so oily and slippery. You don't really know where his loyalties stand, you know, be it the, be it the Kaiser or Hitler. But, yeah, know. but if there's a kind of a NIMSA group uh, still in existence in Germany, exactly. I think he would be connected there. But, oh, but, but would that mean that if this scenario is right, would that mean that Hitler was ousted in that process or is it a room for Hitler still? I think personally, I've always thought that that Hitler survived. And, and the reason I've, I've thought that he was more or less essential to the immediate post-war plan is that he he's valuable principally as a symbol yeah. of continuity. Um, he's no longer necessary to the organization or its plans or goals, but as a symbol, he's still very, very powerful. Yeah, yeah if you're going to get exile Nazis to rally around you, you can't use a Bormann. Right, right, exactly. Bormann, you know, Bormann is a bureaucrat. You know, I, I think of him as kind of the second generation professional bureaucratic Nazi. <laughs> right? mm. Yeah, and he was despised by so many. Oh, yes, Nazis. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and because because of that very feature that he was – he was a bureaucratic toady, but, you know, he was the organization man that got things done. Yeah. So we have two, at least two scenarios then regarding the bomb plot. One is that uh, it was against Hitler and that it was in coordination with the brethren, so to speak, the kindreds in America. Right. But the other is that it was also done with Hitler and Bormann's consent, at least Bormann, but at this, exactly. at this exactly. point, Bormann represents Hitler anyway. So, it, it, yeah, yeah the, the, you're, you're wise to point that out because I pointed out in, in the book, The Third Way, that if, if what the Madrid Circular is saying is true, then the only two possibilities you have with the bomb plot is that it was seized upon by the Nazis as a crisis of opportunity to create false legends for the people they want to get out of Europe, or it was completely staged top to bottom for the Allies' benefit. You know, <laughs> and we know they did something like this uh, regarding uh, Yalma Schacht and maybe also Fritz Thyssen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not unheard of. No, it's no. basic uh, spy uh, psychology. It's basically spycraft, exactly. And you know, since we're speculating wildly here, it even yeah. stands to reason that if if you entertain these types of hypotheses about the July bomb plot against Hitler, that there may have been assistance or help from allied intelligence interests that were interested in seeing a regime change mm. inside of Germany. So you you would possibly have relied upon Alan Dulles and his contacts to do some of this. And it's interesting, in the movie itself that you cite, Valkyrie, Mm. With Tom Cruise, you'll recall that the German major that's that's telling Cruise how to detonate the bomb is using British detonators. That's an interesting detail. Wow! Oh yeah, it's, they're they're using British detonators to detonate the bomb. <laughs> so cool. you know that leaves one scratching one's head. Yeah, yeah MG Five was really at top of the game back then. So oh yes, absolutely, mm. they still are. Yeah, <laughs> they still are. Mm. Okay. Oh yeah. Mm. Well, okay, we need to leave the war scenario, but okay. uh, it is an important backdrop. And, oh yes. Uh, 
And, and I think that if we are right here in some way, if uh, the business plot people, I mean, they wouldn't roll around and play dead after the first no, failure. No, they would be encouraged by the fact that they weren't uh, put to trial and kept responsible for their actions. So I think that's the first encouragement. And it could probably be a psychological backdrop to why they would have the balls to do pull the similar thing towards JFK. But that's a little ahead in the timeline. We have to understand uh, the JFK thing first. So uh, enter Roosevelt then. Uh, it's interesting also that Roosevelt was more one of the moderate generals during the war. He was not probably an insider among the Oliver... You mean Eisenhower? I mean Eisenhower, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you understood. Yeah, so Eisenhower would uh, be a kind of a step back after Truman. How on earth did Eisenhower manage to take over after Truman? I don't know enough about American politics. Well, you've got to remember, Eisenhower was, was a staff officer in the Pentagon for General George Marshall. Uh, Roosevelt himself, on, on Marshall's recommendation, promoted Eisenhower to general rank. Uh, people in this country, in the American military, were amazed at how a, a, a man who's basically a major and a colonel is all of a sudden, you know, a three and a four star general mm. running the Allied effort. Well, R Eisenhower was, you know, kind of the American version of. of the quintessential German general staff officer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, his 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 forte was staff work, which you needed. You know, for someone running a coordinated British and American, Canadian, uh, Australian campaign for the Allies in 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 Western Europe. But Eisenhower therefore has this strong Roosevelt tie. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's he's. A, he's a moderate in this sense, and and I think it's very significant that in this scenario that you're proposing, that Eisenhower then is subsequently tapped to run for president against President Truman. Mm. And again, you see the same Sullivan and Cromwell crowd persisting on into the, the Eisenhower administration. You've got John Foster Dulles becomes his secretary of state. Alan Dulles remains on at the CIA, of course. Richard Nixon is brought in uh, from the House of American Activities Committee, incidentally, mm. to to be his vice president. And then Eisenhower turns over, you know, all of the covert operations planning to the National Security Council and puts Nixon in charge of all of this. <laughs> so yeah. you see, this this whole thing is is basically. Um, Shadow boxing when yeah. you have when you have basically presidents that are puppets of, of these factional interests and it's very clear exactly. that, that Truman and Eisenhower are are very much beholden to that crowd in in the what I've been calling the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. So yeah, Eisenhower Eisenhower is another one of these um, gatekeep presidents. Let's let's just be blunt. That's that's what he is. Mm. But uh, how I see it then is that uh, Truman represented then the reaction, the, the coup people, uh, even if he wasn't 100% controlled by them. And right. I, I see that uh, Eisenhower is a chess move back to the Roosevelt people, that he represents right. 
them. So it's kind of, yeah, so they are both puppets for each faction in this scenario. Yeah. And uh, it's, but the thing is that it's still two steps ahead and one back for, for the dollars. So it's still uh, an advantage to the dollars because under Truman, they get to establish the national security state that they desired. Yes. And yes. once they have that, I mean, even a new Roosevelt wouldn't be able to roll that back very easily. Oh, no. And certainly it didn't happen under Eisenhower. So no wonder he, he warned us afterwards. Well, essentially, yes, exactly. Essentially, you have with the creation of the CIA, the NSA, all these things that are created when Truman signs the National Security Act. The very fact, Al, that you have a lawyer from Sullivan and Cromwell put in charge as director of the CIA and then under Eisenhower, his brother put in charge of the State Department means that the national security state basically is acting as an agent for the corporate interests of the country that were conspiring against Roosevelt. In other words, they they have decided to play the, the... Roosevelt game and use the big government card to establish agencies of the federal government that essentially represent their interests. That's what's going on. Hmm. And Alan Dulles, of course, you know, is is hugely significant in the Kennedy story. Yeah, yeah. Because Dulles is director of the CIA when the Bay of Pigs occurs. And when Kennedy decides that, you know, he's going to clean house after that disaster, he insists on Dulles' resignation. So effectively, he fires Alan Dulles and a bunch of other people that Dulles had brought in with him, Richard Bissell, General uh, Cabell, and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, He fires these people, and then he comes up with his national security memorandum. I think uh, it's number 270, 271, something like that, where he decides that he's going to shatter the CIA, smash it. and toast and bits. Yeah, smash it into a thousand pieces. And he does this by turning all covert operations planning over to the Pentagon. In other words, he takes it away from the CIA and passes it on to the Pentagon. Mm. And, you know, my thinking here is, okay, what does this mean in terms of the factions represented by the CIA? If if you look at it, what he's done is he's, number one, he's challenging the same corporate block of interests that Roosevelt was challenging mm. when he used the information from from General Butler mm. and basically blackmailed their compliance into into his policies. So he's he's threatening that corporate interest. He's taking aim at the front behind which this post-war Nazi organization, General Galen's organization and so on, has been hiding. In other words, the CIA was basically the human intelligence part of the CIA after World War II. Mm is General Galen's organization. Mm. And it was so bad that when the CIA was presenting its briefings to President Truman on Soviet capabilities and intentions, what they were doing was they were taking Galen's intelligence estimates and analyses and in many cases simply retyping all of this. Yeah, carte blanche. Yeah, carte blanche, retyping all this on CIA stationery and passing it along to President Truman without any further comment or analysis. So in other words, effectively, 
we have a, a Nazi general briefing the American president on what Soviet intentions are. You know, this is just nuts yeah. <laughs> when you get right down. You don't even have to, to make a scenario with Bormann in the shadows no. for this to be nuts because he would have all the incentives in the world to portray a Nazi paradigm uh, regarding the Russians to the president. Yeah, and that's exactly what... So it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Galen did. Galen, it's now known, drastically overestimated and deliberately did this, overestimated Soviet capabilities precisely to get the United States into an arms race with the Soviet Union. In other words, you know, the strategy here is very clever and it's laid out in that Madrid circular. The strategy is very clever. What you're doing is you're trying to bankrupt both countries. This is what you're trying to do. Yeah, plus plus on a more sober note, uh, it is secures him and his people's jobs exactly. for a long time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You are dependent on us. You need us. Yes, exactly. So, you know, in comes Kennedy. He's going to smash the CIA. Well, if this means he's created two factions of powerful enemies, he's created a, a the enemy of the American intelligence community, he's created the enemy of the corporate interests backing it, and he's created the enemy of the Nazis using it as a front. Mm. So right there you have three different factions that have good reason to want to see an end to the Kennedy presidency. Yeah, right there you already have his death signature, yep. let alone all the other stuff we're going to touch. But before yep. we, we, we really go into the juicy stuff in the JFK tragedy, I want to look a little at the background here because I've been reading up a little and I've checked out Joe Kennedy. Now, <laughs> I, yeah. I let, let, let me run this by you and then you comment it. Uh, <laughs> It seems to me that Joe Kennedy, the father of JFK and all the other Kennedy clans, the, the real chief here, he was actually a part of the business plot people. Yes. It seems to me that he got himself ahead of the pack by being a representative of the Irish faction in America. Yes. And he was connected to the Irish mafia. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, but then we see that he got uh, more and more... I don't know if it radicalizes the world, but more and more right-wing. He became like uh, Jew-hating, and mm -hmm. he was deeply into the Wall Street, uh, the WASP part of Wall Street. Oh, yes. And he wanted his sons to succeed. He wanted his older son to be become the president. Yes. But unfortunately, Joe Kennedy died uh, uh, during the war or something. Yes. So then the chess pieces were stacked behind uh, JFK. And right. Interestingly, he agreed. So Hoover hated Kennedy all the way back then. Yes. And when Kennedy was dating a German spy called Inga Arvad, yep. he actually colluded with Joe Kennedy to because they were both worried that there was a security breach here. Yeah. So according to the theory then, uh, they made Kennedy a... Uh, War hero in order to uh, get him out of that situation, which uh, which uh, Hoover didn't like, of course, but which secured Kennedy. Now I'm getting to the point here. I regard Kennedy here as a jack in the books for the power elite because they thought that he was their man because of Papa Joe, right? Right, exactly. And then, for some weird reason, Kennedy is a huge step back and the ghost of Roosevelt is suddenly back. Yes. 
Uh, and why is that? Why was JFK so much more moderate and, and uh, why wasn't he on board with uh, these people? Well, I suspect that it's because Kennedy, at some point between the time he's a senator, from junior senator from Massachusetts, up to the time that he is elected, that some, pardon me, sometime in that time frame, he had a, a, for want of a better expression, an epiphany, a revelation that the power structure in this country was was beginning to tilt so badly away from the institutions of, of constitutional government mm. and toward a, a hidden government of a deep state that was ultimately going to play economic and military havoc both in the country and around the world, that he, he knew that he had to use the power of the presidency to try and stop this. I, I, I really do think. Yeah, but was his speeches against the, the – because we know JFK had speeches against the secret powers and many conspiracy oh, yes, theorists yes. think that's about Masons and stuff. I, I don't agree at no, all. No, 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 yeah. no, no. I think, I think Kennedy – I think Kennedy, by dint of the fact that, that he's kind of hovering around all these investigations going on about penetration of the federal mm -hmm. government – you know, his brother is, is is an assistant counsel for Senator McCarthy. Most people don't know this, but but this is this is this is quite true. Uh, and in fact, Joe Kennedy was lobbying McCarthy to make Bobby Kennedy his chief counsel. Yeah. So in other words, you you have the involvement of the Kennedys in the awareness that there is a huge deep state structure that has begun to take over. And Eisenhower, of course, found out about this and warned as he was leaving office. And I think Kennedy is kind of picking mm. up on the same, the same trend yeah. here when he's starting to warn about uh, secret societies and, and their danger and so on and so forth. I think what he's talking about, quite frankly, is this national security structure, this informal but very real network of connections between Wall Street, between the intelligence community, between the military uh, industrial complex and mm. so on. This is all becoming part of his, his way of thinking. And then there's another aspect of, of um, President Kennedy that we have to look at as well. His Secretary of the Treasury that he brought into his administration. I, I can remember this very vividly, spending uh, American dollar bills when I was a kid with the signature of C. Douglas Dillon as his Secretary of the Treasury. Now, C. Douglas Dillon, of course, was one of the partners of Dillon and Reed, an old Wall Street investment firm. In fact, Catherine Austin Fitz was a partner in Dillon ah. and Reed. So in other words, you, know, these, you see these connections are very, very deep. Well, Douglas Dillon was one of the old-time uh, wasps, as you as you put it. Uh, you know, a, a an investment banker with a little bit of integrity, and he he himself had written and expressed a desire to curb the power of the Federal Reserve. Wow! So, in other words, yeah, Kennedy Kennedy is coming into office with somebody that was viewed by other people on Wall Street with a bit of suspicion 
because this was a fellow that had expressed some misgivings about the power of the Federal Reserve. And of course, this ultimately will express itself in, in John Kennedy's administration mm. when President Kennedy signs a an executive order in June of 1963 for the creation by the United States Treasury of $4 billion worth of United States notes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, most people don't know what these are. And in fact, you – I remember spending these these bills when I was a kid. Is it what people call the Kennedy dollar? They were the Kennedy dollars, right. A United States note, if you ever encounter one, they will have a red treasury seal rather than the green treasury seal of the Federal Reserve, all right? Mm. So in other words, what Kennedy did when he authorized the circulation of $4 billion worth of United States notes, what he did was he bypassed the Federal Reserve entirely. These were debt-free notes is what they were. They were the Kennedy equivalent of the Lincoln greenback from the American Civil War. They, In other words, they bypassed the central bank entirely and therefore did not add to the debt of the nation and you know the federal reserve i remember vividly spending these <coughs> kennedy bills as a kid and you gradually noticed <coughs> pardon me that over time these bills were taken out of circulation when the federal Re when they came to the federal reserve banks they were simply removed from circulation yeah uh, so um You know, everybody who, who, who tries to oppose the Fed dollar gets into trouble somehow. We've seen yep. that the three presidents in America who has yep. been shot yep. all try to interfere. And we see that the countries in the world after that yep. who try to put up their own uh, currency and be a threat to the dollar, yep. the same happens to them. The so we know this is a geopolitical consideration. Oh, Absolutely. But what I'm getting at here is you've got now yet a fourth faction that would that would like to see a removal or a change of policy of the Kennedy administration, and that, of course, are the central bankers. Hang on. I, I, I count two. I count uh, the CIA because he wants to smash them and the feds because he wants to smash them. Who else have we mentioned? You've, you've got the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. In other words, you've got the, you've got the Wall Street big corporations. That's, that's number three. And then you've got the Nazis hiding in and behind the CIA. That's number oh, four. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you've actually got now four factions yeah. <laughs> that are all angry at Kennedy. Yeah. Let, let's just uh, list the whole uh, bunch of suspects. The whole, the whole yeah. bunch? Okay. <laughs> well, in addition to this, Kennedy also came out with a proposal to decrease the oil depreciation allowance, and that put him in Dutch with the, the big Texas oil men, uh, Murchison and Hunt. And incidentally, when you, when you research Murchison and Hunt and their role in, in the assassination, you'll discover that these big Texas oilmen had some sort of private intelligence network all of their own. Mm. Guess whose it was? Whose intelligence network it was? Well, I, yep. I guess who. Does it smell brown or? It, yeah, it was Galen. Galen, yeah. Mm. They, were getting, they were getting their intelligence from West German intelligence via Reinhard Galen. And I suspect and have always suspected that 
people who research the JFK assassination and stumble across the character of, of George DeMorenschild, the guy that introduces Lee Harvey Oswald to the white Russian emigre community in Dallas, so the man that that puts him in touch with the Hunts and the Murchisons, and the man that ultimately engineers his job at at the Texas School Book Depository. Well, every Kennedy assassination researcher, except me, yeah. has said that DeMorenschild looks and feels like a CIA agent. And I'm adamant in, in insisting that no, if he's CIA, he's only CIA because he's on loan from Galen. Mm. So there's Yeah, because you know what? Levando substantiated this. He yes. said in an in- interview we had with him that the bank account in uh, Indonesia. Yes. That the Morgan Shield was involved. And I was thinking CIA, but there are two possible uh, influences on that. Uh, not two possible, there's two obvious influences. One, we know, is the CIA because it was a front office of them. The other is the Nazis because it was the Nazi gold. Well, exactly. Bingo. Ding, ding, ding. Bingo. There's the connection. So both right? of them. It's both of them. Common interest. So now you've got the Texas oil men and oil in general that are against Kennedy. And so that's another faction that you can add to the list. Then you've got – Six factions. Yeah. So now we've got more factions. Then you've got the Kennedy administration. We have to remember that that, um, President Kennedy placed his brother Bobby as the attorney general of the United States at the Department of Justice. So this makes Bobby Kennedy J. Edgar Hoover's boss, okay? <laughs> number one. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, yes, number one. And number two, what does Bobby Kennedy begin to do? Well, Bobby Kennedy, let's go back to that period after the war when you've got all of these congressional committees <laughs> investigating this and that aspect of alleged penetration of the federal government. You know, everybody thinks of McCarthy. But people also have to remember that there were committees, the Kefauver Committee, the, the McClellan and, and McCarran and all these people running these committees investigating the mob, all right? Mm-hmm. And let's remember those scenes of Bobby Kennedy grilling Jimmy Hoffa in front of these yeah. these mob investigation committees, all right? Now, so the Kennedys get into office, and the thing that tips the election, most people think, in favor of John Kennedy over Richard Nixon in 1960 is Chicago, Cook County, Illinois, which mm. is run by an old Democratic machine under Richard Daley, Mayor Daley of Chicago, who has deep, deep ties with the mob. And it has always been alleged that the mob really tipped – Chicago in Kennedy's favor and gave him the election, all right? Yeah, because they thought uh, he was their man. Well, Santos Traficante in Chicago, all right? You know, everybody points to Santos Traficante, and he's definitely involved in this. You've got Carlos Marcello down in New Orleans delivering all these votes to the Democrats to get Kennedy elected. And then Kennedy comes in. He puts his brother Bobby in charge of of the Department of Justice. And what's Bobby do? Well, he goes after the mob. He He actually smashes. He he goes after the mob big time. He, he deports uh, Marcello for a period, actually rounds him up and, and ships him out wow. of the country. 
uh, you know, so he's going after the mob. So you've got the mob has a reason now to hate Kennedy in addition to the fact that mm. when Kennedy refused to invade Cuba – it's the mob interest, you know, they've lost their casinos, they've lost all of their money laundering capability that they're making millions of dollars with in, in Havana. Mm. So, you know, he's upset the mob. So you can add now another faction to all of this. And let's remember something. This was pointed out by uh, Professor uh, Peter Dale Scott, who's done just an extraordinary amount of research on the deep connections behind the Kennedy assassination. And one of the things that he uncovered was the, the relationship between Richard Nixon when he was on the House and American Activities Committee in the 1940s. And guess who? Jack Ruby. <laughs> okay. wow. So in other words, you've got the mob involved here and yeah. my approach al to to the kennedy assassination is rather different than most researchers because what i do what i've done is i've looked at all of these these scenarios of americans trying to figure out just exactly who orchestrated this thing you've got people that say it was the anti-castro cubans and there is an element of that involved you've got people that say that it was the mob that was involved you've got people that say it was the fbi the cia texas oilmen and so on well my point here is is that Kennedy has pissed off all of them, and therefore they're all involved. Yeah. The only major point of departure I have with most of these researchers is I do think, adamantly, in fact, that there is a Nazi connection to the Kennedy assassination as well. Mm. Uh, we have, uh, and and you'll have to read the book to to see how that plays into all of this but let me give you let me give you a few tidbits of information here mm. when oswald is arrested by the dallas police for the murder of officer tippett we have to remember he was not initially charged with the murder of president kennedy but rather with the murder of a texas uh, a dallas texas policeman by the name of jd tippett all right mm -hmm. When the police raided Oswald's apartment and, and found his notebook, his address book, he had the address and phone number for some reason of the American president of the American Nazi Party, a fellow by the name wow. of George yeah, a fellow by the name of George Lincoln Rockwell. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that has always made me extremely suspicious about these German and Nazi connections over and above the fact that Hunt and Murchison are, are relying upon intelligence, some sort of intelligence relationship with Reinhard Galen's uh, Bundesnachrichtendienst, is that Oswald, according to his Marine buddies, when he's stationed in Japan, the most people, most researchers will tell you that Oswald was heard learning and speaking Russian, right? Mm. We're all familiar with that story. Yeah. What is also put in the Warren report itself that most assassination researchers completely ignore is the fact that these very same Marine buddies also heard him learning and speaking German. German. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Now, let's go a little bit further. 
when Oswald defects to the Soviet Union, he ends up being placed by the Russians in a job at a television factory in Minsk in Belarusia. All right. Mm. And it's there that he's given a very spacious apartment, which is odd in itself because it's almost as if he's getting special treatment. And it's there that he, he meets his future wife, Marina, who is the daughter of a GRU colonel, all right? In other words, Soviet military intelligence. Mm. And Lee Harvey Oswald is married right into it, okay? Yeah. So, you know, and I'm not saying... Marina, but do you believe they really loved each other or was it all a stage? Oh, yes, I, I, do, I do think that, mm. you know. Um, for, for personal reasons, I'll talk about, you know, sometime off the record. But because I have personal connections with all of this that... that I'll just have to tell you off the record, okay? Yeah, uh, the, the UFO host on Coast to Coast, the real journalist among them. What's his name again? Oh, boy. Uh, George, George Knapp? Yeah, yeah. I think he brought her forward some years ago. Uh, well, Marina, yeah, Marina is still alive. Um, she has not been seen or heard from for quite oh, some uh, time. Well, she, she was actually heard from there, and that was a scoop to get her to talk. Oh, wow. And she talked yeah. about her love life with, with uh, Oswald. But anyway, that's a detail. Yeah, I, I, do, think, I do think that was a genuine, uh, a genuine love affair. But um, let's look at Oswald in the Soviet Union. Once he's there, he then decides that he wants out of the Soviet Union, back to the United States. And so he brings a Soviet GRU colonel's daughter in tow with him at a time when it's extraordinarily difficult to get anybody out of the Soviet Union, much less the daughter of a GRU colonel, okay? In other words, this indicates extraordinary intelligence connections are being leveraged in his behalf. Now, once he's in the Soviet Union, he obviously is able to have some contact with the West because he's got money. He has enough money to get out of the Soviet Union. And, pardon me, there are apparently people watching him inside the Soviet Union. Now, most assassination researchers, when they, when they look at this body of facts, conclude that, well, it's obvious that Oswald was CIA. And indeed... When you look through all of the evidence, you do find that Oswald was on the CIA pay, payroll, mm -hmm. all right? But here's the problem, and again, we have to go back and understand the context here. If Oswald is being run as some sort of deep cover CIA agent inside the Soviet Union, who's running him? Because we have to remember the on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground human intelligence that the CIA has inside the Soviet Union at this time in history is General Galen and the German Bundesnachrichtendienst. That's the human on-the-ground presence. So in other words, add all this up and what it adds up to, to me, is something completely different than most JFK assassination researchers will maintain, and that is that the, the agency that is doing all of this on behalf of Oswald, putting him here, teaching him Russian, teaching him German, getting him into the Soviet Union, getting him to Minsk, and so on and so forth, which is in Bielorussia, 
which is, guess what, where George DeMorenschild is from. Okay. And Belarus is very tonight with Nazis. Oh, absolutely it is. Yeah. Yeah, wow. because, you know, so all this adds up to me to a completely different picture than JFK assassination researchers have, have come up with. Mm. And that is that if Oswald is CIA, then then the organization running him practically is the German BND. Mm. They're running him for the CIA. Rather than FBI or CIA. Rather than FBI or CIA directly. And this is crucial because, again, it's Demorenschild who, once Oswald is in Dallas, it's Demorenschild who's introducing him to the Texas oil people, who's introducing him to the the white Russian emigre community in Dallas, which was rather substantial at that time in history, and very Nazi, and ve- yes, and very very right wing. Yes, you know this this is the other part of the connection. So there is a you know there is to my mind a fascist connection here to the Kennedy assassination. There, there's some deep layer of of Nazi involvement with this. And the other reason I've always thought this, Al, and it's it's an obvious one, but mm. you have to stop and think about this for a minute. When when and I remember this as a boy, you know, I was alive when this happened. And in fact, I was homesick from school that Friday. And I was sitting on the floor, my mother was sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette and, and sewing and watching her soap opera. It was, we were watching, I'm serious. I remember this <laughs> yes. vividly. Uh, it's vivid. Continue. It's vivid. It's very vivid. Um, yeah. It was, it was an old soap opera called As the World Turns that used to run on, on the CBS uh, television. It's finally over? It's, oh, yes. It's finally <laughs> okay. over, yes. Okay. But, um, and, and we were sitting there and then, they cut in and made the announcement that there was something that happened in Dallas during the president's motorcade. And then the story gradually kept interrupting until they went to total coverage on on the breaking story. So I'm watching this happen. Okay. I remember seeing this and that night, of course, and all weekend we were just glued to the television set and Walter Cronkite, you can go, your listeners can go get a, a, um, a documentary on DVD called Evidence of Revision. And it's it's a wonderful documentary because it allows you to actually see the major network news coverage of the assassination in chronological order. There's very little commentary. And when you watch it, you're going to be stunned because the first initial reports – of and I remember my dad. I, I I can I can hear him to this day as he's watching this, smoking his pipe, grumbling, you know, at what he's hearing. Because the first reports of the rifle that was recovered, the alleged assassination weapon, were of a seven point six five Mauser. And Cronkite and and the other announcers kept emphasizing this was allegedly a 7.65 German Mauser, okay? Then later, the story, the rifle story is changed. Oh, no, we've been reporting it was a 7.65 German Mauser. It's changed now. We were wrong. It's actually a 6.5 Italian Mannlicher Carcano carbine, okay? That's it's right there in the news reports. 
Now, if you go to assassination researchers, uh, Jim Mars and, and, and people like this, even, even uh, you can go online and, and look at the old interviews of the Dallas deputy sheriff by the name of Roger Craig, who was the guy that went up there and found the rifle. And he maintained adamantly that it was a Mauser, not an Italian Manlicher Carcano. Mm. Okay. Mm. I find an Italian weapon just as respect, but okay. <laughs> it's well, still the well, well, exactly. <laughs> this is my point. We have here yeah. two rifles from two Axis powers. Okay. Right. Right. This, to my mind, was always always suspicious. This is a little bit of message sending in symbolism, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, do, you, do you think they wanted to? Uh, there's two scenarios. We did it. Ha ha ha. Or we're oh. going to put the blame on the Nazis. Just a potential because they don't know the outcome yet, right? They have Soviet blame and they have Nazi blame. No, they can no, 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 no. There has never been any attempt, even initially after after the assassination, there was never any suggestion that it was Nazis or Italian fascists. But could it have been a potential excuse they played around with using? No, I don't think so. I think it was a message. Mm. I think it was a message. But in any case, let me tell you something about the Mauser that I think you're going to find extraordinarily interesting. And this, again, I, I'm not aware that any assassination researcher has ever really highlighted. There are a few that know it, but they really don't understand what the significance is that they're looking at. All right. Because a 7.65 Mauser was never used ever by the German army. Hmm. It was a special version of the Mauser rifle that they, the company made under license for Argentina. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Now, talk <sighs> about <laughs> – in other words, you really have to be a firearms specialist to know all of this. Yeah. So in other words, what I'm looking at, what I'm suggesting is you have the usual factions involved in the Kennedy assassination, anti-Castro Cubans, probable mafia involvement, you've got CIA connections, you've got FBI, FBI connections, you've got all of these pissed off people. You, you forget Wall Street and Cubans and oil. And the Wall Street and oil. You've got all these people involved, but you've also got a Nazi element involved. Mm. So let's look then at the Warren Commission itself, okay? Mm. And this is what I do in the book. I take the Warren Commission itself as a template for the cover-up. Oh, my God. Because if you look at the seven commissioners, each of them has some tie to one of the factions. That There's actually seven factions. Yes. That's a tribunal <laughs> council, each victor having their representative. Yes. Isn't that convenient? Classic. Mm. <laughs> exactly. You've got – and this, this is so – it's classic. Of course it is. And the most interesting yeah. thing to me here is is John J. McCloy was one of the Warren commissioners. Now, let's look at McCloy here. In addition to Alan Dulles, McCloy was a member of Sullivan and Cromwell. Okay? What else was he? Well, he was the American counsel for I.G. Farben. <laughs> okay? He shares a box with Adolf Hitler during the Berlin Olympics. After the war, conveniently enough, 
He becomes the American High Commissioner for West Germany, pardoning all sorts of Nazis so that Conrad, so that uh, Conrad Adenauer can have them in his cabinet. And then he ends up, guess what, as one of the commissioners on the Warren Commission. You look at Hale Boggs, of, Congressman Boggs from, from Louisiana. Well, he's got mafia connections to Santos Marcello. You look at... Uh, you look at Gerald Ford, all these other people at some point. And Dulles is the CIA man, of course. And Dulles mm. is the CIA and Sullivan and Cromwell and Wall Street. Yeah. Did the oil people and the Cuban people have representatives? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, McCloy represented a lot of those kinds of interests as well. So you've got all these commissioners on the Warren Commission, and they have, they have some sort of connection to the various factions that have been pointed out by JFK assassination researchers as being involved. So in other words, my approach is synthetic. Instead of saying I'm looking for just one group involved, what I'm suggesting is, is that the assassination was exactly what Jack Ruby said it was. It was so big and so huge that most people wouldn't believe it if he told them yeah. what it was. And of course, we also know that Ruby is famous for having said the Nazi is coming to take over or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. He said the whole new form of government's coming into existence. Fascism is on the rise again, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. But the bottom line here for our purposes is, is that by saying that all of these factions that various researchers have made extraordinarily good arguments were involved yeah. in the Kennedy assassination, I'm saying, okay, then all of them were. Yeah. And what you really have then is a coalescence of interest, just like the t subtitle of the book. What you have is a coalescence of interest that, in effect, stages a coup d'etat. And I do, in the book, this is something that people must understand. I do approach the Kennedy assassination as a coup d'etat by reviewing a study of a famous American think tank specialist by the name of Edward Lutvok, who wrote a book on how, you know, how to do coup d'etats. You know, how, <laughs> how are they done? Instruction you manual, know? huh? Yes, an instruction manual. And I, I, I take the book and I go through the book and I point out that most of the things that he's talking about were actually done in the Kennedy assassination. You know, most people forget the fact that when Kennedy is um, – on his tour of Dallas and when he's actually shot, the entire federal cabinet is on an airplane back from the Far East. So in other words, they removed the cabinet from any ability. Is that normal to take an entire cabinet in one plane? Of course not. No, no of course not. <laughs> And in addition to this, when they're on the plane, when they hear about the assassination, they're trying to open up communications, and voila, they discover they haven't got any. Wow. Uh, Washington, D.C., the phone system in Washington, D.C., went down oh for that crucial God. hour. This is, you're probably aware how many uh, similarities this has to 9-11. Of course. Ding, ding, ding. We won't go there today, but <laughs> ding, uh, ding, wow. Ding. Yes, exactly. Only the, a big difference, actually, to uh, – credit of our contemporaries is that there actually was some dissent in the 9-11 commission yes yeah. unlike the much more cartoonish uh, warren commission oh yeah they're they're 9-11 in fact i mentioned peter dale scott earlier the the american 
professor that has done so much analysis of the American deep state. Well, he has pointed out himself these parallels between the Kennedy assassination and 9-11. And in a detailed, I'm not saying just parallels, I'm saying in a detailed dot, dot, by dot, point, by point fashion. Well, we need to read that study. Where can we get that? Do you know? Uh, you Probably on Amazon. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a book. Oh, there are several books by Peter Dale Scott. Okay, several books. Several, several yeah. books by him. Yeah. Uh, he's he's definitely an investigator worth getting to know. Yeah, let's let's give a shout <laughs> out for Daniel List here, our dark journalist. He yes. had some great uh, programs with Peter Dale Scott. Yes, that's that, right. That's how he brought him to my attention. I've seen the name before, but I'm not that educated in American history, of course. So, so yeah, he's a, he's an important man too. Oh, absolutely. But you know, Joseph, you dropped so many bombs now. <laughs> <laughs> we need to digest this, so I suggest we take a quick break sure. and we continue this uh, unraveling of uh, minds when we come back. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. You're listening to Forum Borealis, and this is part two of our show today with Joseph. And uh, he's just dropped a lot of bombs here, so <laughs> you're in top shape today. We have to digest it a little further, and while we do... I have a question to you regarding your new book, because you seem to be going out of your usual element here. Not that mm -hmm. uh, I'm suggesting this. Uh, I mean, this is your field. You are a professor after all, so it's a very timely book. But uh, it's still a little fresh, uh, or I should probably avoid that word in American. <laughs> but, but it's, <laughs> it's an innovative uh, step for you now, uh, considering what you've done so far. Mm -hmm. You mean you're talking about the book uh, Rotten to the Common Core? Yes, uh, regarding education. Regarding American education, or really the lack thereof. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you've been talking with George Ann with many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, actually, the book may seem like it is out of the normal flow of my books, but when you read it, I think you'll discover it really isn't. Uh, in particular, in the book, I, I go into the findings of the Reese Committee, which is one of those congressional committees that was created by the Congress in the post-World War II era to investigate external influences and penetrations on the American government. Mm. And it's one of those committees that I've been advocating or urging that people – put into the context of all of these congressional investigations, you know, of mafia penetration and communist penetration and so on and so forth. Well, the Reese Committee is kind of for a forgotten committee, but it was investigating the influence of corporate foundations on education and American culture. And again, you find the same players. Hmm. So I'm I'm approaching I approach that book deliberately from the standpoint that people need to to put that in the context of the rest of the book. So it seems at first glance like it's totally out of the picture 
from everything else I've been doing. Mm. But it actually stands four square in the whole series of books, absolutely. Hmm. You have a co-author this time, I saw. Yeah, I have a co-author. Uh, Gary Lawrence is the co-author. It's misprinted on the Amazon uh, cover, but I do have a co-author. I have a number of friends that are still in the teaching profession in this country. And, you know, they, they've been telling me horror stories of, of what's going on in terms of this so-called Common Core program, yeah. which is the latest educational fad to hit this country. But, um It may seem like it's not a topic very worthy of attention by a European audience, but uh, I would I would urge people not to look at it that way because I oh no 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 it's a blueprint for what's coming here oh yeah so exactly we ought to exactly. check it out yeah exactly um, it's it's a horrible thing and and I think once people get into it and see what is actually in the book, they'll see the connections with everything else that I've been talking about. What was this implemented during Obama? Uh, actually, the, the, the start really began back under President Bush, uh, but even more so, uh, it, it goes all the way back to planning for education that was done in the 1950s. Wow. Uh, and again, you've got the same group of people that are involved in all of this. Uh, so the connections are there. I, I urge people, you know, don't dismiss it simply because it seems to be on kind of a ho-hum, less sensational topic. It's, it's quite important. Okay. Well, I figured since you've been in the system and you've been uh, concerned about the topic uh, that it was a natural step, but uh, you actually tie it into what you already have written about. shouldn't be surprising because uh, the educational system is just like the media. It's one of the tools yep. that if you want to control, if you're Donna Coop and you want to control uh, the narrative, uh, you, yep. you must brainwash the population. Yep. And and dumb them down. So yep. but we'll have shows probably where that's more natural to go in depth to. I think we should pick up the threads now from part one. Sure. And uh, but by the way, you're okay, right? You're not in oh, a bad yeah. health right now? No, I'm fine. No, I'm just saying because you had some coughs uh, during part one. I, I've, I've had there. I've had weather here that's been hot and cold and hot and cold and it always affects my sinuses very, very badly. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm fine. That's like my hometown of Bergen. It's a coastal town. Yeah. So we get uh, havoc with the weather after the climate change period. We can have. We usually say that uh, at a typical Bergen day, we have like uh, five uh, seasons uh, in <laughs> one day. <laughs> so. Anyway, moving on here. So we have the ex-Cubans, we have the oil guys, we have the Wall Street corporations, the CIA, the Feds, the Mafia, and the Nazis. Now the usual suspect, the not-so-very-magnificent Seven. And um, we have this term that you've uh, launched that uh, has fallen into very good earth, which is uh, a coalescence of interest, because that kind of sums it up. Yep. So I think what we're dealing with here is actually a united putsch of America. Yes, exactly. Yes, and um, then the question begs itself that, okay, you go to all the power players in America at the time, and it's probably very easy to get them on. 
by the way. People will probably feel we're missing one particular aspect of this story, but we're getting to it. But I would just want to say at this point, so you, you, it's easy to get them on. Yes. The big question, of course, is who, whose idea, who took the initiative, who among these people were desperate enough to be the most impatient guy to start it all. <laughs> and people have been blaming LBJ, and of course he is suspicious. Now, but I've been thinking about LBJ that... He was actually afraid at that before because uh, things were starting to – he was starting to lose it. He was starting oh, yeah. to get his due karma. Yeah. So in a way, he wasn't powerful enough. But on the other hand, he was connected. So he could have shopped around and said, hey, who, who's with me? We're going to do this. Who's with me? But then again, he wasn't so very bright. So I think that he must have been – someone must have contacted him. And then got him to shop around. What do you think about all this? Well, I think I think I think LBJ had, by the nature of the case and, and what's going on here, I think LBJ at some stage personally had to have been involved in some aspects of the planning, if for no other reason that it would have left him in power after. Kennedy's death. And he was a power psychopath. We all know that. Oh, yes, absolutely he was. Mm. And he would have had to have been involved, in my opinion, in, in some degree of the planning for the simple reason that he would have had to know his script, so to speak, and what to do after the assassination took place. In other words, you can't pull off a coup like this without understanding that the important part of the coup isn't isn't the actual act. It's the cover-up yeah. and the getaway afterwards. And you've got to have your man knowing the basic things that need to be done mm. in the immediate aftermath of something like this. Mm. So in my opinion, many researchers look at LBJ and assume that, okay, well, it's just unthinkable that an American president would be involved in actual planning of something like this, but it sure looks like he was involved in the cover-up. Mm. And that's as far as they go. And I'm simply saying that if you're involved in the cover-up, you have to kind of know ahead of time yeah. what it is you're going to be, be expected to do. And therefore, you are, by that nature, by that, by that line of reasoning, you are involved in some degree of the planning. I don't think that LBJ is involved at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think he's involved at a very high level simply because he's coordinating every detail of the actual trip to Dallas. Yeah, they need an inside man. Yeah, they need an inside man with the authority and, and the power and the connections to do the security stripping and so on, to plan the details of the actual trip itself in conjunction with, with Governor Connolly in, in, in Texas. So you've got to have someone in that position, and LBJ obviously fills the bill perfectly in that respect. But the other thing I think we have to understand here is that I don't think he is the, the organizational center of this. I think for this, you have to look more at people with the powerful connections in all aspects of the American deep state that would be able to pull off something like this. And that means you have to look at characters like Hoover, at characters like Dulles, <clears throat> pardon me, 
you have to look at characters like the, the big Texas oil men who have their boots on the ground, the intelligence connections, the financial connections, and so on and so forth. And it was so, in their home turf. And it was, yeah, precisely. It was in their home turf, exactly. And, and we got to look at exile Cubans who are good at the lowest level. Yes, exactly. You, you've got... You know, by now, I think it's self-evident, if, if your listeners have been following or reading about uh, the Kennedy assassination research that's out there, it's very apparent that there were several shooting teams yeah. at Dealey Plaza that day. Uh, Oliver Stone made that very clear in his film, did, did in my opinion, an excellent job yeah. of, of explaining, you know, why... There had to be several teams in order to pull this up. Uh, um, what's this good guy called who really tried to make a trial, who actually succeeded, I think? That was Attorney General, uh, District Attorney, pardon me, District Attorney Jim Garrison. In, in New Garrison, right. poor guy. I mean, one decent uh, public servant in a nest of snakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Def- he talked about, and this is less known, he talked about Nazi connection. Uh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Of, uh, yeah. yeah. No, I think I think it's pretty obvious if you look objectively, even with a debunker's mind. If you look at the facts, we see that LBJ is the one central uh, government guy who's not isolated uh, together with the administration. Right. Uh, he's uh, uh, he's an inside guy. Yes. And he, before this happened, there were so many, because he was a low-level bandit, he was more like a mafia dude, and there was so much oh, co- yeah. corruption that was now starting to, the trail was starting to get to his uh, feet, and he's a power psychopath. So, I mean, even if it w- even wasn't, even if someone just approached him and said, hey, we're going to take out your brothersome boss, great. Well, let's let's talk about LBJ for a moment and talk about a crucial piece of evidence that I did not include in the book because it's it's one of those things, it's one of those connections to LBJ that is so astonishing that most people can't wrap their heads around it. Mm. Uh, I prefer to kind of argue contextually in my cases, as you know, rather than take sensational things and just make it the centerpiece of, of the argument because that oftentimes distracts people from what the argument really is that's being made. Mm-hmm. But let's look at one of these crucial pieces of evidence. Lyndon Johnson had a connection to a hitman, well-known hitman in Texas, and you can research this on YouTube by the name of Malcolm Wallace, all right? Mm-hmm. Now, Malcolm Wallace performed a number of of hits for the Johnson machine, according to many assassination researchers. But the most significant connection that this guy has to the Kennedy assassination and that links LBJ directly is that there was a partial thumbprint that was recovered at the sniper's nest, I believe in the school book depository. And forensic fingerprint experts, local Texas experts, have made and argued a very tight case, in my opinion, that this partial thumbprint is that of Malcolm Wallace, not Lee Harvey Oswald. Hmm. So in other words, you have a Johnson hitman, someone that's part of Johnson's machine in Texas with a partial thumbprint in the school book depository. So there is a much more direct connection 
But it's one of those things that most assassination researchers don't even touch because it is so direct, because it is so blatant and in, 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 and in your face. But it is there. You can Google this information on, on YouTube and, and watch the various videos of how this thumbprint was discovered, what Malcolm Wallace's relationship to Lyndon Johnson was, and so on and so forth. But, you know, Johnson had, uh, as many people have pointed out, I'm certainly not the first, Johnson had his own personal reasons, and you've already alluded to it, for involvement in, in the assassination, because his his close contacts, uh, uh, Bobby Baker and then later Billy Sol Estes, were under investigation by the United States and these, of course, were well-known, close associates of, of Lyndon Johnson. They were, they were basically kind of his bag men. Yeah, he had brutes who did dirty work for him. Yes, we know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, he, these guys were coming under investigation precisely in the period, in the weeks immediately prior to the assassination itself. So Johnson was looking like if something didn't happen to Kennedy, you know, it, the possibility existed that he might have ended up in prison. Mm. So, you know, he's got personal motivations here beyond <clears throat> that are compelling, way beyond even the considerations that we're talking about of, of factions and so on and so forth. Um, Johnson's involvement here, I think, is, is in my opinion, it's, it's always been suspicious. Who has the most to gain personally from getting Kennedy out of the picture? Well, it's Lyndon Johnson because, of course, once he's in the White House, he has the power of the executive to stall anything. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. But policy-wise, I don't see him from history, judging from history, I don't see him very – very representative of the Oliver Cromwell gang. The, the, the Sullivan and Cromwell yeah, crowd? So, yeah, the business plot people. He, he seems to be a little too leftist for that. So I, I've always find that puzzling. At a personal basis, sure. But then again, it's brilliant. If you want someone to take over for JFK without uh, seeming like a coup, because if we go back to the Second World War, it was a very uh, black and white shift. So if you take someone who politically doesn't seem to be too far away, but on a personal level, is a corrupt, uh, power, psychopathic bastard who will help us, mm -hmm. then it is a very smart move because all you need after LBJ is to get in someone more conservative, say, say a Nixon. Well, actually, LBJ, it's not strictly true that LBJ is more left-leaning than, than or, or kind of left-leaning like, like Kennedy. He had very, very deep, powerful corporate connections. And in fact, if you look at the argument that many assassination researchers have made that, that LBJ completely reverses Kennedy's yeah, many policies. Yes. Many policies. On, Essential policies. But I'm well, on, Viet, on Vietnam, I'm thinking particularly. Yeah, but also the feds. Well, when you, when you look at, at Johnson's corporate connections, many of these corporations are given sweetheart government contracts in Vietnam. Mm. So in other words, it's kind of like a Cheney Halliburton scenario. Uh, that you see taking place vis-a-vis -vis Johnson and what's going on in Vietnam. So, yeah, you, Johnson is, is from, from the standpoint of, of the conspirators, he's much more preferable to Kennedy simply for the reason that they've got blackmailable goods on Lyndon Johnson, you know, that they can, they can literally coerce him yeah. into doing what they want to do and accomplish what they want to accomplish. So yeah, I think he's. I think he's. 
he he's kind of the perfect guy to have in place at yeah. the time when when you're planning these types of things. Yeah, but he did do some uh, progressive stuff during his. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It belongs to the story, but uh, no, he he is the perfect insider and and cover upper. But what about I I saw a few years ago a documentary. I think it was uh, actually an Infowar production, so, but it was good despite that. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, no, but, but, yeah, you know, <laughs> we have to be like, somewhat scholarly. In, uh, but this was a good documentary. I don't know who made it, but actually there, they prove that there was a personal Bush connection. They oh, yes. go very far to... Uh, indicate oh, yes. that he uh, that senior was involved. They even speculate that junior was involved as a kind of a um, initiation, but that at least senior was uh, central here. I think there's even a picture of him placing him at there, the the George Herbert Walker Bush connection in all of this is one of the murkiest aspects yeah. of the story. Al, it's it's really truly uh, it's it's really truly bad. Um, there is, and this was uncovered very early, there is a reference in the Kennedy assassination evidence to a George Bush having alerted the American security apparatus of a plot against Kennedy in Texas. Wow. All right, And the story has always been from the family itself that, well, this must be some other George Bush. Well, you know, it doesn't... Yeah, CIA is floating over with George Bush's, huh? <laughs> exactly. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you've got Texas oil men involved in, in a conspiracy to kill the president, who that George Bush might be. Because at the time, he is running a, a front oil firm called Zapata Oil. And this has been brought out in, a, in an excellent documentary I don't remember exactly what the title of it is. You can go on YouTube and, and look at this thing. You can buy DVDs of it. But Zapata Oil was set up as a, as a front company running a, a supposed oil operation in the Caribbean, perfectly positioned to be kind of a liaison point for the Bay of Pigs operation. Mm. And when you look at George Bush's connections at the time that all of this is going down, and of course Zapata Oil was one of his companies, mm. uh, and it had a ship called the SS Barbara. You know, this. How many more connections do you need? You know. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, when did they marry? Or meet? Uh, they married after World War II. I think it was right. in, uh, or maybe even during World War II. I think it was during World War II. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. So they've been around for a while. Mm. But the the other problem here is that uh, apparently George Herbert Walker Bush was in either Dallas or Tyler, Texas, one of the two. Uh, Tyler is this little city kind of north, east northeast of Dallas a bit, if you don't know where it is. But uh, was apparently in Texas and can't and claims to this day that he can't remember where he was. Yeah, you know, that's interesting the, too. You know. Yeah, it's so many parallels to nine eleven. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's so many uh, disparities in Bush's uh, explanation for nine eleven, and he can't remember too <laughs> in certain instances. It's so so we have a Papa Bush and uh, uh, or Darth Vader as he really should be called for JFK. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we have baby bush for for 9-11 that's so interesting it's it's frightening when you stop yeah. to think about it and again yeah. the connections here go even deeper because allegedly uh the hunts and the murchisons were giving a party the night before kennedy's assassination hmm. at which it was a party uh apparently being thrown for j edgar hoover who shows up and in attendance at this party uh, this was brought out by by LBJ's alleged mistress, Madeleine Albright. Apparently, wow. Lyndon Johnson shows up at the party along with Richard Nixon, huh. and then they then they go in behind closed doors and have a few you know meetings. And then, according to Madeleine Albright, again her story is somewhat suspect, but it's worth mentioning. According to her, you know she's at this party after after the meeting breaks up, LBJ comes out and and tells her after kind of under his breath after tomorrow I'll never have to put up with those Kennedys again blah 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 mm-hmm. so you know uh, the party apparently did take place and and there were apparently some very high uh, high people involved there and of course Nixon's presence yeah. raises the, raises the eyebrows <laughs> considerably but um you know again there, there's just no way when you start to look at all of this stuff there's just no way number one that you can maintain that this was simply the, the actions of a lone nut assassin uh, named Lee Harvey Oswald who may not have even been on the sixth floor of the school book depository when it happened that's another thing that I yeah. get into in the book um, it, it, you, you can't look at this and, and maintain, in my opinion, with any rational credibility that the official story is true. No, but uh, in fact, it's the opposite here. This may be actually the one uh, assassination that has had the most people involved. Yeah, exactly. Not a lone gunman, but a exactly. complete full house. Exactly. And it's not only that. We have to remember something else, Al, in this respect when we're talking about the Kennedy assassination. And I'm sure that, you know, this this interview isn't the last one or, that we're going to do on the subject because there's so many details to get into. But we have to remember that there are actually two official versions of the assassination in the United States. There's the Warren Commission report, which, of course, was, was the most famous. But there were also the congressional investigations, the House investigations. Investigations on assassinations. Uh, Garrison's case? There was Garrison's case. But I'm talking official at the federal level. There were these congressional there were these congressional investigations that did conclude that this was probably the work of a conspiracy. Which is interesting because, and I'm raising this point because it's a very significant point. If you look at the American executive branch, if you look at the presidency itself. It is, it is noticeable, and people have commented on this, that any time that the assassination comes up in the context of the presidency or the executive branch of government, mm. it is still the official position of the executive branch that the Warren Commission report is the fact. Yeah. So in other words, there is, there is a schism within the American federal government on the issue of the assassination between the executive branch and the Congress. Mm. That's, I think, highly significant. Because the Congress, of course, is the symbol of of American, of the American Republic, of American democracy. Mm. 
and the presidency is, of course, the the symbol of of American power, the executive, the bureaucratic Mm -hmm. power. And this is a little indicator of what has happened in this country since then. You have a disconnect of the institutions of government from the people. Which is perfect split and rule if you're in the intelligence agencies, national security. Exactly, Mm. exactly. So this is something, you know, and in in addition, as you pointed out, you have the garrison investigation that uh, he attempted to bring all this to trial in 1967. Mm. And... Again, you know, he uncovered so many things, and you're right to point out that he 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 un, he uncovered and pointed out the existence of some sort of Nazi involvement. But this did not make it into the trial. It did not make it into Oliver Stone's movie because nobody really knows how to make sense of it, and that's always been my my impression. And this is what I attempted to set out to do in the book was. All right, we've got all of these other assassination researchers who've made very good cases for the involvement of this or that faction, but they're all ignoring this one. So how do we make sense of, of this huge picture? Well, hang on, is this in the third way or in, uh, in JFK, the Kennedy book? JFK, in, in, the, in the LBJ and, okay. and Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy book. So already there, you point to the Nazi Oh, yeah, the, the, absolutely. That, mm. that book is… It's a part of the Nazi series then. It's a part of the Nazi series in that respect because I do point out that you have all these factions, but I'm concentrating on that one simply because it's the most ignored in all yeah. assassinations. Needn't be the most influential in the whole scenario, no, but it's not. the most overlooked one, right? It's the most overlooked mm-hmm. one, right. No, because uh, have you seen the television? In a, there's a television interview with LBJ right after this happened. Yes. It was censored a little bit which is out now. You can see it on YouTube, people, if you look for it, where yes. LBJ, because he, he's not the most intelligent knife in, in the drawer, and he there does something that he probably got scolded for, and so that's why they asked to remove it from the airing, and that is that he admits that it could have been a conspiracy. Well, actually, yeah. It the was, Freudian slip. It, no, it wasn't. Actually, it was an interview that, that Johnson granted to Walter Cronkite right. at his ranch. Mm. And Cronkite did ask him that question. Johnson did admit that, yes, it could have been a conspiracy. He goes on briefly to say that our concern at the time, and if you go back. It was Russia. Yeah. was Russia. And the, <laughs> no, it was a very real fear, Russia and a thermonuclear war. Now, yeah. The reason I'm mentioning this is you can go on online or get a hold of that documentary called Evidence of Revision. This is such a crucial thing, and again, it's overlooked by most people. Mm. During the immediate aftermath of the assassination, when the news networks are all down in Dallas and they're covering each and every little breaking story, one of the CBS reporters at the time, gave a comment that there was some fear of a thermonuclear exchange and counting things in mega deaths okay yeah. this is during this is during the period between the assassination of kennedy and then ruby's murder of oswald so in other words it's it's taking place i i, I think on saturday uh november 24th hmm. when this this is first broached so in other words there, the, what I'm suggesting is that there was a faction that was pressing for 
the use of the assassination as a crisis of opportunity to start a major war, okay? Can you spell 9-11? Can you spell 9-11? <laughs> exactly. And this got stymied for some reason. And then, most significantly, this to me is so huge. They interviewed President Eisenhower during all of this. And... Eisenhower had a very worried look on his face. And he said, all I can tell you is, I know the American people will not be stampeded. Uh, sorry, what does that mean? That means pushed into, in, pushed into actions or beliefs or both. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. They will not be stampeded. Uh, pardon me, Mr. President, can you expand more on that? No, no, I don't want to expand on that. All I can say is I, I'm just very confident the American people are not going to be stampeded. Hmm. Now, what he meant by that is, is anyone's guess. But I'm suspecting that what he meant is, number one, we're not going to be stampeded into accepting an explanation for the assassination that makes no sense. Hmm. Number two, I think he also meant and I think, you know, hovering in the background in his mind at the time were his remarks about the, the military-industrial complex that were not going to be stampeded into precipitate military action as a result of it. Mm. But it's, you know, it's one of the most haunting things that you can see. And very clearly, Al, when you, when you see him giving these statements, uh, you can see that there is extreme worry yeah. on his face. I look at it. It's, it's, it. Yeah, you have to look at this very carefully because it's it's uh, again, this is an excellent documentary that people need to read. Now, there's another thing in this documentary that's worth mentioning, and that is, and again, I'm not talking about things that I put in the in in the book. Okay. But they're, they're simply out there as context for people to understand and read the book in, all right? Fine. Um, but the other thing that, that is, is extremely interesting in that documentary, Evidence of a Revision, is that there is a clip of Walter Cronkite, the old CBS News anchorman in this country. There's a clip of him reading a statement by Valerian Zorin, all right, a mm. Russian uh, a Russian diplomat, actually. Mm. And Cronkite prefaces this statement by saying, and this just in uh, the Kremlin's reaction to the events in Dallas, this from Valerian Zorin, uh, please remember this is a communist mouthpiece. Uh, this is communist propaganda coming from the Kremlin, okay? Now, mm. let me stop before I tell you what he goes on to read what Valerian Zorin said. Valerian Zorin, if you look this man up, was the Soviet ambassador to the United Nations Security Council during the Cuban Missile Crisis, okay? Mm. So, in other words, this guy was in the thick of all of those diplomatic maneuverings between Khrushchev and Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis to keep the two countries from going to war with each mm -hmm. other, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, Khrushchev is scrambling to head off his hardliners, and Kennedy is scrambling to head off his hardliners. Yeah. And you had Valerian Zoran. You remember Adlai Stevenson. Kennedy sent Adlai Stevenson to the United Nations with the pictures of the Soviet missiles in Cuba, all right? Mm -hmm. And it's Valerian Zoran who had to make the response. 
So the the announcement that Cronkite is going to make about the assassination of Kennedy is coming from the former Soviet ambassador to the UN Security Council. In other words, this isn't just a propaganda communist shill he's talking about here. This is this is a guy highly placed in the Soviet hierarchy. Yeah. And then he goes on to read Valerian Soren's statement. Anybody who has studied these matters, and I'm paraphrasing here from memory, knows that this could not have happened without security being interfered with. Anybody who knows world leaders knows that they travel with security. In other words, what Valerian Zorn was saying was Kennedy's security had been stripped and that it was not the action of a lone gunman. And moreover, he goes on to say, and this is coming from a region in the United States where the right wing has been most opposed to Mr. Kennedy's policies. And where he had enemies. So in other words, right there, the Soviets are signaling through a senior ambassador that they know this is a conspiracy, yeah. is, is what's happening here. Yeah. And Cronkite is attempting to, to say, don't pay any attention to this guy. He's a communist shill, but we're going to read it to you anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, so you have to spin it before. You have to yeah. spin it before you read it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But no matter what Eisenhower meant by that statement, at least at a minimum we can infer that he would never make such a statement if he didn't think there was more than a loan. Exactly. Because Oswald would have no way of forcing the American people uh, in some der- derailment. I mean, exactly. he couldn't alone exactly. play a big political scenario. So, But I also wanted to ask you, which intelligence agency abroad, except for KGB then, do you think knew, understood what was going on? Um, oh, you know, you know, right at the head of my list? Yeah. The Sûreté in France. The French, yeah, I've heard that. that Absolutely they knew. They knew because mm-hmm. let's remember who the president of France is at the time. A war guy, yes. General uh, de Gaulle. Good de Gaulle, yeah. Yeah, General de Gaulle. He knew about the Nazi threat. Well, he knew about it because he had been the victim of several assassination attempts yeah. by that crowd mm. using disgruntled Algerian French military officers behind the scenes. And the Sûreté tracked this down to this post-war Nazi international, okay? Mm -hmm. And, you know, wrote it all up and presented it in a report to to President de Gaulle. Mm -hmm. And then after the Kennedy assassination, it's very interesting that in France, a book was published called Farewell to America. Mm -hmm. And it was an analysis of the Kennedy assassination based on what was publicly known from the intelligence files of the French Sûreté about the assassination attempts on President de Gaulle. Mm, mm. So in other words, the French immediately picked up on several things. Number one, it wasn't the action of a lone nut. It was a conspiracy. Number two, it was connected to the assassination attempts on President de Gaulle. And number three, it had some sort of connection to this international rogue network of fascists. Mm. So, you know, all of this is coming out in France. And again, this is a book that is hardly ever mentioned in any American assassination research on on the topic. But we have to remember 
that, you know, Americans are not the only ones researching this thing. No. And that, you know, at the head of the list, it's the French. And probably the British, too. And probably know. the British and probably the Germans. You know, absolutely. Yeah. What about um, Zionists? There are some people who claim that the Zionists are involved. Uh, yeah. Have you heard anything about that? Israel. Well, I again, I don't. I don't discount it because here's why. If you look at the second Kennedy assassination, if you look at Robert Kennedy's assassination, you have Sirhan Sirhan, yeah. who clearly is clearly is some sort of, uh, in my opinion, mind controlled puppet. Yeah, that's hypnosis. I think it's proven actually. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I, th I think it was the brilliant British mentalist hypnotist Darren Brown. I think it was him. Some famous guy, a skeptic, he was out to debunk it. Yep. And when they investigated it, they were shocked because it, uh, the opposite was the result. Uh, yeah. He, he was... Uh, oh, Darren Brown did a, it did a tremendous show, I think, on, on the BBC years ago where he actually programmed a guy to think that he had killed somebody. Yeah. No, yeah, and to kill them. And to kill them. Not just to think that, but yeah. to actually to do think that his action killed them. But it obviously was a staged thing. But he right. thought he had done it. Yes, so it's possible. Yeah. yeah. And, well, yeah. Sirhan, 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 the excuse that he gave to the examiners when he was being interrogated for, for his role in, in the assassination of Senator Kennedy mm. gave the excuse that, well, he didn't want Kennedy to send all those bombers to Israel. So, again, you have all of these kind of connections lurking in the background here that do raise a number of possibilities as just, you know, how extensive was this thing to be anyway. And uh, I'm at the stage anymore, Al, that I don't discount anything. However, that said, I, again, find that a, a Zionist connection to, to Kennedy's murder, I, I – looked at it, and I'm just really not all convinced that it's there. Um, of course, now you now I hear all the Nazis shout out that you're a Zionist agent. But I mean... I oh, mean, yeah, I'm a Zionist agent. And if well, I, you don't put them past them, right? Yeah. So it's not... Uh, well, I don't, put, I don't put anything past them, no. no but, no. but again, my problem with the Israel, you know, Israel's behind everything crowd is I approach this from the standpoint, okay, if I'm a Mossad... Analyst, or if I'm a Mossad case officer or something, am I going to take a risk mm. that we're going to do something like assassinate an American president? And if that were ever exposed or known, the the risk to the national security of Israel would be extraordinary. Now, that said, and I don't see what they had to gain. Well, that's my point. Mm. What do they have to gain? But that said, we do have the Israeli attack under Lyndon Johnson, incidentally, mm. on the USS Liberty in, in the uh, Mediterranean Ocean. We had that Israeli attack on an American ship. Mm. And, you know, that has always been a, a carefully um, hushed up incident. Uh, it you know it appeared briefly in the American news when it happened, and then it just dropped right off the radar screen. And that's so murky. There are connections between LBJ and what was going on there uh, that to this day I don't think we know the f the full truth about that incident. And again, this was um, this this was clearly an is Israeli attack on an American ship. So, yeah. But okay, but the Zionists we will take them on later. They'll get the uh, <laughs> 
Okay, we're not uh, just saying that to those listeners who don't think we're who think we're not honest when we we don't look at all the players. And obviously they are a player, but in this scenario here we have to go by the evidence. Yeah. And to believe that there were no Nazi influence at that point when we know that CIA and NATO, yeah. Don't forget NATO and Germany was uh, infested with uh, these agents. Absolutely. And as for Oswald, I forgot to point out also the obvious, namely that at that time, it was a mainstream thing among agents to be double agents, triple agents, quadruple agents. That's why they had counterintelligence officers. So so, uh, Oswald's case, like you mentioned in part one, is very interesting here. But I see... Even another disturbing factor. There's enough to pick from, isn't it? But tell us this, Joss. Is it a coincidence, then, that Nixon was taken down uh, (laughs) through the conspiracy against him and Khrushchev was taken down shortly after? And by the way, people, I know you're pining for us to get into the NASA aspect with <laughs> the aliens and stuff will end with that. Let's just take this uh, geopolitical thing first. Is that coincidental or could there be... No. You know, I, I, I'm the last one to talk about Illuminati, but if you look at that traditional view of a para-national shadow government here, mm-hmm. it seems that their influence is growing, unless, of course, the Soviet establishment themselves for their own interests, which I think is linked to the alien thing. But, of course, they could have done it because Khrushchev was their kind of JFK guy. Yes. So, so they didn't. We don't need someone above the Soviet establishment to substantiate this. But what's your thought about uh, these uh, scenarios, then? Well, with regard to Nikita Khrushchev, I think that there is something very, very disturbing about the fact that within a month or so after Kennedy's assassination, mm. he was ousted and basically placed under house arrest until he died. This, to me, has always been highly suspicious, Mm. and it's clearly, in my opinion, the timing of it clearly connects it somehow to the Kennedy assassination. So the real question becomes, what is what's just what's going on over there? And I don't think to this day that the Russians have ever, ever told us exactly the full story on on what all of that was about. But you'll do recall that Richard Hoagland came up with the thesis in his book, Dark Mission. Yep. That President Kennedy had made an offer to Premier Khrushchev for a joint Soviet-American mission to the moon, manned mission to the moon, Mm. and that Khrushchev had dithered and, and gone back and forth on this until finally about a month before the assassination, he finally decided, you know what, let's just do this. And signaled this to President Kennedy. Now, this, according to Richard Hoagland, is all coming from uh, Khrushchev's son, Sergei. And we must give kudos to Hoagland for being one of the first to to, to uncover make this, this yes. uh, known. Yeah. Yes. Mm. yeah, this is all coming apparently from Khrushchev's son, Sergei. All right. Mm. So, in other words, it's coming from a fairly high level if indeed this this whole thing took place. Now, I tend to think that it probably did, and here's why. Because there's a bit of contextual evidence that Kennedy was planning some joint space mission with the Soviets. 
And the CIA documents out. The CIA document, indeed, that, that Kennedy... Ordered, Ten days before he was shot, he wrote he, a letter. Yes, to the CIA, saying to have the CIA vet all of its UFO files mm. and pull all the ones without any national security information or, or implications and, and share it with the Soviets, all right? Mm-hmm. Now... At this juncture, I, I'm a little perplexed because there's really at this time no UFO incident that doesn't have some sort of national security implication. Yeah. So I think what Kennedy's signaling to the CIA is I, I basically want you to turn this stuff over to the Soviets. We need to share data on this phenomenon and coordinate our efforts in, in space on, on this basis. All right. Mm. Now that to me right there signals several things vis-a-vis who's involved in the assassination and why at a very, very deep level. Because first of all, what Kennedy is suggesting is that this phenomenon is an international security phenomenon, Mm -hmm. and it is beyond the ability of any one nation to deal with coherently and consistently without some sort of coordination with the other major powers of the world, and Mm -hmm. chiefly among them, of course, the Soviet Union. So this this is a signal that he's touched a really exposed raw nerve <laughs> because, as I pointed out at the San Mateo Secret Space Program <coughs> pardon me, conference in, in 2004, if you're the American national security establishment in the post-war world, you have essentially a threefold strategic threat that you've got to deal with. Mm-hmm. You've got to deal with the communist bloc. You've got to deal with whatever this Nazi thing is out there that all of a sudden is there, mm. and they're not supposed to be there. And, you know, on my reading of Roswell, they're flying their stuff around New Mexico looking at what we're doing. Mm. And then finally, and most importantly, you've got a big whopping UFO problem, mm. all right? So you've, you've set up a structure of black projects and the financing for them. That's key, which is in total secrecy. It's not part of the black budget. It's even deeper. Mm. So Kennedy comes along. He says, well, we want to share all this information with the Soviets. So the first thing you're threatening to do is you're threatening to expose that hidden system of finance and all the players in it. So there's your bankers. There's your Wall Street. There's your Sullivan and Cromwell crowd once again, folks. And secondly, if you look carefully at the way I've been arguing this Nazi influence within the American space program, I've argued a few essential points. Number one, the Apollo missions did occur, but they did not occur in the way that we think they occurred, in that they probably had, at some point, some hidden technology that was involved that enabled us to get there and to get off the moon once we were there. Yeah, I was thinking we could take on NASA on the moon next time. Well, uh, let, let me... Because it's let a me, big, big thing. It, it is a big thing, but I, I want to mention this here because yeah. it's important to the Kennedy story about, mm. about space. Mm. So a deal was struck, in my opinion, with these Nazis for access to some of this technology mm. to enable us to get to the moon and to beat the Soviets. Mm. And the deal, in my opinion, was that whatever we might find up there, we had to share with our our hidden Nazi collaborators. Let's remember, Kurt Davis, Bell scientist, is the flight operations coordinator at Cape Canaveral during the Apollo missions. He's not a rocket scientist. 
Now, what this means then is if Kennedy's going to share all this data with the Soviets, he is exposing the very secrets, the very technological secrets that this American fascist group would want to keep from their most hated enemy. So in this respect, he's making yet another enemy with and creating yet another motivation to get rid of him. Hmm. So, you know, on and on it goes. But yes, I think this is the space aspect of it. Yeah, you don't need aliens to explain this, actually. Occam's race. No, you don't. I mean, if your scenario with Roosevelt is right, and uh, we, we don't need more than one scenario, but there's probably several, because we touched upon that last time that they could have swapped the Nazi thing for the UFO things many times. Right. I mean, Nazi with alien. But even here, imagine the waves of shock going through the the shadow government people when... Uh, when uh, the Nazi UFO uh, connection is uh, the data that they have, right, which shows the Nazi connection, exactly, is going to be delivered to the world uh, intelligence scene. Exactly, everybody and your mother would know eventually. Exactly, this so is something. They, this is something they want to keep hidden in secret. Oh yeah. yeah, and you know, this I think indicates possibly a, a reason for the response of the Soviets, because we have to remember that there are elements within the Soviet Union at this time, within the communist hierarchy, that are much less Marxist socialists than they are fascist socialists. And that's, oh, yeah, that's, they're Stalinists, yeah, exactly. which is basically national socialism without yeah. the race cult. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, no, it, it certainly... Uh, um, complicated stuff. Um, I, I would be a remiss if I didn't mention that last time I had a little brain dump because I was summing up to you stuff that pointed in the UFO direction and we did mention Sergei Krucher, we did mention the CIA documents. But there's another uh, substantiation that recently came out uh, by lieu of Daniel List again, dark mm-hmm. journalist. Mm-hmm. He interviewed this famous, oh, I forgot his name, uh, this famous uh, media guy who told pretty much the same story that JFK was murdered mm-hmm. for the very reason that he was going to expose the UFO thing and, and connect with the Russians. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who that was that he had out just recently? Oh boy, I I don't recall right offhand who you're talking about on, on Daniel List. Um, you should but look I, into that. I, I find it's a guy from the Nixon um, Watergate. Oh, um, Douglas Caddy. Yes, Douglas Caddy. He yeah. came out now. And yeah, because I think it was this Hunt, Howard Hunt guy that he befriended. Oh, yes. This, uh, who admitted on his deathbed. And he wouldn't have any, you know, we all know that deathbed confessions are worth something. So he came out with that story just recently. Yeah. It's now so late that it probably won't lead to any... <laughs> I mean, if all the other stuff that came out didn't change anything, this wouldn't. Well, but it's just another evidence. It's inter- Let me provide you a little bit of context for that assertion. Please do. Yeah. If you look at the Majestic 12 documents of the Cooper Cantwheel series, in other words, these, this is the second set of documents, not the, not the do- original documents that were mailed to Jamie Shandera, but the ones that were mailed to to Timothy Cooper, 
by a man allegedly calling himself Cantwell. And I review these documents at great length in my book, SS Brotherhood of the Bell. And again, I'm reviewing them from the standpoint of do their contents make sense? In other words, I'm not concerned if these documents are authentic or inauthentic or even if they're disinformation which have bits or kernels of truth in them. I'm simply concerned with the contents and do the contents make sense in the context of this wide scenario that we've been developing. In those documents, you'll recall that there is a document that President Nixon took the action to to remove this Majestic 12 group, this government group, mm-hmm. from control of the UFO files and turned them all over to private corporations. Mm-hmm. Now, put that into context, and what this means is Nixon was taking the step to remove the government entirely from any process of quote-unquote disclosure that might go on, because now all this information becomes proprietary. And therefore, the government cannot do this because now it's proprietary information. So in other words, it's as if Nixon is reacting to some pressure inside the government to come out and disclose all of this stuff about UFOs, Mm. if all of this is true. So I don't find it at all. I I don't find it at all fantastic that, that President Kennedy may have been considering such a move. Because at that time, of course, this UFO study group is still very much under the the authority of the government. Mm. And he may have been one of the last presidents really kept in the loop about all of this and to do it. And, of course, you know, to bring that up to date now to contemporary times, you've got the Clinton's interest in UFOs. You've got all the recent revelations about Hillary Clinton going yeah. to, to Lawrence Rockefeller. And, and Can I just comment that quickly? I mean, sure. first of all, uh, first of all… Uh, if that's if she even would do that, because people point to that guy she has on her team that is a true, uh, genuine disclosure uh, adherent. Right. I forgot his name, but he's a famous Democrat. Yeah. But it's just bullshit because, oh, I'm going to look into it and reveal it. Well, even if we believed her, the fact is that mm-hmm. her husband have already done it. And you can bat your pants that she knows everything he knows about this. Right. So she would already come out with it if it was genuine. So this is just bullshit. She knows already what there is to know, whatever it is to know about Area 51. Well, she may know. But my point here is she may know up to a point. But when you have taken the really juicy stuff and private it and made it proprietary corporate information, there's yeah. no way that she could access it and coerce no. anything like that to be done. This is the key no. point here that people are forgetting about all of this if those Majestic 12 documents are true. And I happen mm-hmm. to think they are because we have other contextual evidence that there is something going on within the American corporate defense establishment of this nature. You have those very curious statements by the former Lockheed Skunk Works director, uh, Ben Rich, who mm. comes, you know, toward the end of his life, comes out and says some very strange things like... Act of God. You know, we have, we have the capability to take E.T. home, or we found an yeah. error in the equations, and now we can go to the stars, and things like this. Well, for a man in his position to be saying these things literally at the end of his life, is an indicator that, yeah, there is something going on in the defense corporate world that is not 
part of the oversight of the federal government. And again, the Nixon, the Nixon aspect of this plays into this uh, context, I think, and corroborates it. And this is why I'm always very, very skeptical, to be honest with you, Al, when people say that they're going to force the government to disclose. Because the real point here is the government has turned all of this over and, and basically washed their hands of it. And turned mm. it over to private groups that are handling yep. all of this. And NASA was even officially privatized under Obama. Yeah, you've got all of this stuff going on. And more recently, uh, President Putin has done the same thing with Roscosmos, with, with the Russians. Oh, yeah, he privatized it. He made it a state-run corporation. We'll have to look into all this next time. Time is running out here. Yeah, uh, I understand. So we have to wrap it up. Uh, I have a couple of quick things I want to run by you before we do that. Sure. First of all, if um, the scenarios we've been laid out is to be taken seriously, I think actually that the alien thing certainly would be, the UFO thing, I mean, certainly would be an incentive to take him out, if not everything else. Yep. But the thing is, it was just 10 days before. So I think his death sentence was given even before that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so so I think it wouldn't, uh, if anything, it just motivated them further. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree. And prob- that's probably why also there wasn't many protests and moves, uh, shockwaves uh, displayed, because at this point they were snickering for themselves. <laughs> yeah, you dream on, a guy. Right. <laughs> Old chap, we're going to take you up very soon. So, yeah, whatever. You send that letter. Uh, we'll take the time we need. So, uh, no, I think uh, it, it was in the works. Maybe this contributed to setting the date. But uh, but then again, no, that had to be planned ahead too because they had to involve the local tax and, and right. authorities. We'll have to we have to unravel this further next time, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so before we, we we leave now, what what's the best books out there? Uh, when you wrote your coalescence of interest, mm-hmm. you certainly must have picked oh, yeah. good sources. Which uh, sources do you prefer? I know you mentioned Mars. Well, yeah, Jim Mars, I think, has written the best comprehensive overview of the traditional assassination research in a book of his called Crossfire. Yeah. Uh, there's another book by David Lifton called Best Evidence that examines the autopsy case. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Jim, Jim Garrison's book On the Trail of, of the Assassins. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a book out that is, is definitely a part of the story but is seldom talked about other than by people that really know the ins and outs of the Garrison investigation, and that's called uh, NASA, Nazis, and JFK. Uh, it's actually a book published wow. p- published by my publisher, but it's a book that does nothing but reproduce the so-called Torbett document. Torbett was a lawyer in South Texas that was part of and aware of Jim Garrison's investigations. And this document is a real eye-opener once you start reading it. Um, so I concentrate on that. It's very, very seldom talked about by most other assassination researchers. Yeah. Uh, another book is Dr. Mary's Monkey, uh, mm-hmm. dealing with the New Orleans aspect of the story. Uh, that's an important book. And then there's a book out. I forget what the title is. It's a book about the Zapruder film. By Dr. Yeah. yeah, by Dr. Jim Fetzer, who's also a major player in the 9-11 truth movement. 
Uh, yeah. Dr. Fetzer wrote an excellent analysis of the Zapruder film uh, that I think people need to be aware of um, that, that is, is, in my opinion, is, is an excellent book. Um, I, I, I relied on a lot of stuff, but... Uh, Have you read any of, um, what's his name, Morningstar, Robert Morningstar's? I, I've read a bit of Robert Morningstar, but I did not rely on his book. And the reason why is what I was attempting to do was concentrate very heavily on the actual major assassination theory and research. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't go d very deeply uh, into the off-the-beaten-track researchers, let's put it that way. Uh, I, I tried to stick to the main researchers to show this coalescence of interests. Yeah. Kind of the same uh, approach you do with the ancient series. You don't have to go to Sitchin. You rely on the uh, mainstream. Right. And, and, and even then you can make a case. Right. So that's even better because uh, that's how you avoid the most speculative um, right. detours. Right. Um, we've had... Um, so next time, I think we'll we'll just agree to 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 take on. Uh, well, I don't know if it will be next time, but next time we continue with this thread, we'll we look a little more into the NASA thing too. I think. Oh yeah, there's a big big aspect there. Oh yeah, there's so much that we haven't covered that's in the book, Al. Yeah. That I, I know once you once you read the book and see what's in it, you're going to want to talk more about this. It's that's it's... perfect, actually. <laughs> yeah, but it is because then we can wrap up uh, everything, all the loose ends. Uh, after I've educated myself, I have to say to my defense, because we, ha you know, we have the Pharrell crowd heavily among our listeners here. So I have to say to my offense that I have half of Pharrell's books <laughs> already, uh, and uh, uh, you, you all know how many he's he's made in such a short time. And we all have lives, right? So I'm going to try to to update myself here. And if you donate, I can even afford to buy more more books. <laughs> so that's an incentive. <laughs> Research, you know, it's not, uh, and like, like uh, Georgian used to say uh, about you, you know, it's so expensive with, yeah. with re research uh, material. By the way, back in the day, you weren't that known. Now, it's obvious that you are becoming very well known. And I I'm just thinking, you know, your finances and stuff, it it has there been a, a very good shift for you? Or are you starting to make this a viable uh, way or, or how is this? It's It's been touch and go. It's it's more viable for me now than, than it was, say, back around 2007, 2008. But it's still very, very tough going. I'm still barely... Okay. I'm still barely making ends meet, but it's it's. A so you still accept donations? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I never turn that down. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's like you say, research is very expensive, and I do I do buy a lot of books to do the research. I'm not an internet researcher, and, and the reason there again is is I'm just very very skeptical of the ability of people to plant false information on the internet. Yeah. I want to see a book. I want to. Be able to. No, you're a scholar. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's my methodology, and and I stick with it. But it does get very expensive because you know my research budget on a book when I'm writing a book, oftentimes can go to about a thousand dollars. So it can be quite expensive. Um, mm. In some books, I've actually had people to had to donate money to me because some of the books I've had to research in some of these books were very expensive to even get a hold of. Yeah. Uh, and they don't exist on the internet. You know, you can't go and look up a PDF of some of these books that I've been using. 
but they, oh, no, they no, no. when you go into specialized uh, research yeah. it's uh, you no know, people think everything is on the net that's not true no it's not true at all and uh, you know the especially not when you go beyond the mainstream exactly exactly you have to you have to look for for very specialized sources this was particularly true with uh, financial vipers of venice yeah. Uh, there were some specialized books that I think were very deliberately kind of hidden yeah. from the market and bought up, you know, to keep them out of the public hand. That, that's certainly the, the case when it comes to uh, the esoteric literature yes. of the past, oh, yeah. medieval ages, Renaissance. Sometimes, like Agrippa, I remember I saw one of Agrippa's book. It costs uh, some thousand dollars. So I, I don't yeah. understand why they don't make stuff available, but that's how it is. Well, I, I try to I try to find the cheapest sources I can. But it still gets, yeah. you know, uh, I have to budget very carefully. I'm still in a position where I have to rely on my ability to budget six months at a time because that's when I get paid my royalties. So it's still kind of tough, but it's a lot easier than it used to be. Um. <laughs> Minutes to go, uh, just very quickly here. I I've been remiss at not mentioning this before either, but we can do it now. You have created, and I suspect you had some help here, a very vibrant kind of community on your website it's mm -hmm. like a forum it's it's mm -hmm. not just a website with information but it's a very active uh, little community going on there uh -huh. people can become members and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that right uh yeah i've got I, my website i have a public area where i do my public blogs there's a public forum that people are talking on all the time um i talk on it occasionally and then in my web in my members area which you you actually have to subscribe to Uh, there's a small. Is it free? No, it's a, it's a monthly subscription of about twelve dollars. Mm. Uh, in the members area, I I do every two weeks vid chats with my members. They send me questions. We we spend hours on on every other Friday night cool. talking about the questions, comments, and so on. Uh, I do webinars in the members area mm. on various topics. You know, just me talking with a little PowerPoint presentation. I've got a few papers on some things in the members area that I don't normally talk about these types of things publicly. Um, and it is a community in the sense that um, my website is very community-driven. People send me articles of stuff, and I actually blog about the articles that people are sending me rather than researching them myself. Uh, so it's a bit of give and take, you know, what do you think of this, what do you think of mm. that? Um, So yeah, it's, it's yeah for the hardcore Pharrell junkies, that's where the place to go. Yeah. But they they know that already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's fun, you know. We 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 just did oh, yeah. a bid chat last night, and and we had a lot of fun talking about different mm -hmm. topics that people send me. Uh, and I started that. I be I have to be honest with you, Al. I, I started that simply because. A few years ago, the weight of emails became so enormous, right. and I, I do yes. try and respond to people and their questions and concerns, but it, it was taking time out for me. Oh, yeah. So what I do is with these vid chats, I simply – that's the opportunity that people have to talk to me directly and ask me this question or ask me that question. No, it's, it's a very clever way to do it. Yeah. Uh, you, you do really – it's more effective and, and you get to communicate with your readers that way. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. 
you get help from Daniel de Gris, I suspect. Yeah, he's he's my partner. You're not that tech savvy, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I couldn't do any of this without Daniel. I got to tell you, mm. <laughs> I'm just not a computer. I'm a computer klutz, and you can spell computer and klutz with a K because <laughs> because I, I'm just you know I'm just not tech savvy at all. To me, a computer is a glorified typewriter. You know, I, I they're nice to write books on. <laughs> to me, it's uh, a television. I don't have a television yeah, I, anymore. Yeah, television too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's it. okay. Last question, and I have to ask this because three different people completely uncoordinated have asked us i don't know why but they ask us to have a common show with you and i would understand why they ask for a mutual show with you and someone else but for some reason they want us to host with you and hancock a show graham hancock yes of all things so so obviously regarding ancient stuff right sure would you be up to that if he was up oh to sure it? i i listen i think graham hancock is one of the best researchers out there on this stuff so yeah i cool. i'd be playing i'd be playing kind of second fiddle accompaniment but yeah. <laughs> well we, we'll see we'll see but uh no we're gonna have uh hancock on and uh, i'm gonna ask him the very same question sure. i'm gonna corner him sure so we'll see if if we can make that happen. It's Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve at the same day. So, <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you very much for your time uh, this time. It has to be a quick one, but we'll make it up with having a follow-up later on. All right. Thanks for having me back on, Al. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Forum Borealis and our conversation with Joseph Farrell on the JFK assassination based upon his many books, especially LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, Roswell and der Reich, and the recent The Third Way. We will continue this thread next time we talk with him for the Breakaway series that these and other shows with him are a part of. Did you know that the full survey of this series can be seen at our website? There we are in the process of displaying all the series of programs we're making, as the YouTube playlists are limited in information and overview. We should also mention to everyone who's donated that we've removed the annoying collective login function and replaced it with individual logins for your convenience. So if you sign up, you can save the login info and don't have to bother with that every time you visit our sponsor pages. You also need to know that in many browsers you won't see the updates we make for some reason unless you refresh the entire website and in worst case you need to delete your cache too. You'll find uh, you'll find out how it is next time you visit for we're in the process of adding good stuff to the websites. So it's not entirely done yet, but already now you'll find bonus clips only available to our donators and will only be published to the general public once a year. So if you drop us a coin, you will get access to bonus stuff, early shows, and there's usually one unpublished Pharrell program at any given time, lists of who and what is to come, polls to help us go in the direction you prefer, 
comment section to talk with us or other sponsors and to leave questions and comments for guests and so on. Just check it out for yourself. It's it's all there online. Before closing up for the night, let us remember these famous words. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment, that I do not intend to permit to the extent that it is in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. Yes, this was a quote from John F. Kennedy's famous speech to the press at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, April 27, 1961. But perhaps less known is this excerpt from the same speech. For we are opposed around the world by a monolith and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, of subversion instead of elections, of intimidation instead of free choice, of guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific and political operations. Its preparations are concealed not published, its mistakes are buried, not headlined, its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. End of quote. Certainly, these words resonate even today. Now more than ever, is it paramount that people wake up to the fact that the intelligence agencies and national security states around the world are killing free civilization. We've still got the internet though, so not all is lost. Since uh, the American intelligence military industrial complex is so influential in the world, what happens in Washington matters to us all. So to our American listeners, I would say this. Please vote in the next election even if you realize that votes are more symbolic than deciding, and that until you get money out of politics and ban rather than legalize bribes, voting is still a question 
of signal effect to the power elite. Since, uh, for the first time in modern history, both parties of the establishment has a chance to get a reform-willing outsider who is not on board with the establishment into the presidency, which has the establishment tail-spilling in panic behind the scenes, as the mainstream media reflects. So, do vote for a candidate outside of the mainstream. If you lean Republican, please spend your vote on Rand Paul. Even though he's not his father, he's still the best option from that party. If you lean Democrat, go for Bernie Sanders, and for goodness sake, not Clinton. The least thing anyone wants is a new Bush against a new Clinton, as the establishment is trying to push. I know Trump is not an option. He may not be controlled by the establishment, but it's worse. He is the establishment, only one of the more narcissistic and unruly ones. So even if it would annoy his fellow establishment snobs, he's just as much an elite as them and would push any psychopathic interest and benefit at the expense of us 99.9%, only with a more overtly fascist twist. And if you're clever enough to oppose the false dichotomy and go third party, choose, for instance, Gary Johnson of the Libertarians, or Jill Stein of the Green Party. Stick to your ideals and values, but ditch the authoritarian establishment option at both sides of the false paradigm. When both your eyes are open, you will see it's more about freedom and autonomy versus centralism bureaucracy, with the danger of it becoming outright totalitarian fascist, which is where it's heading anyways. So, so this is our appeal to our brethren across the Atlantic. Save yourself before it's too late for all of us. Now, with the risk of uh, alienating some of our listeners due to our duty of keeping it real, on that drama note, I bid you adieu for now. I, Al, has been your host tonight. Thanks to the Borealis team and the forum. Sponsors. Be seeing you. Who is number one?